Hey, real quick, I just wanted to let you know that Gabba Gabba Hunt is now a record store. Well, not really a store, but a booth at an antique store located in Eastridge Mall in Gastonia, North Carolina. Vintage Village is three stores down from Dillard's on the left. And my booth is on the left side of Vintage Village. It's the one with all the records. You can't miss it. I've got over a thousand records, toys, t-shirts, DVDs, VHS, all kinds of stuff there. So come check it out. Gabba Gabba Hunt Records and Vintage Goods located in Vintage Village at Eastridge Mall, Gastonia, North Carolina. This episode of Gabba Gabba Hunt Talks is brought to you by Hobo Wolfman Records. Hey, I'm a very bad character called Hobo Wolfman Jack, baby. And I'm here to tell you about Hobo Wolfman Records. You like music? They got it. Records, cassettes, CDs, baby. T-shirts, hot sauces, action figures. They got all kinds of stuff for you, baby. Get on over there to HoboWolfmanRecords.com. You are now listening to the Gabba Gabba Hunt Talks Podcast, where we bring you conversations with people connected to the Carolina's underground music scene. Your host, Mike Phillips of Van Huskins. Hey there, welcome to Gabba Gabba Hunt Talks, episode 44. Now, I'm not going to talk much up front, but I did have to jump in here and say that me and Russ forgot to mention the name of his podcast that we talk about around the 25-minute mark. The name of that podcast is No Time to Turn, and it's on the Something Good Network. For our friends over at Something Good For You, Alex and Cap from the Phillians. And you can find that wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's get right to this episode. Me and my ex-wife split up 2011, I've been here ever since. I mean, I guess until I, I decide to get serious about another girl or something, I'm not in a hurry to go anywhere. You're right, yeah, I understand. I, I live in a kind of a similar kind of thing. It's a like a converted pool house and behind this other this lady's house and it's kind of the same deal it's like you kind of find yourself crash landing in middle age and you just sort of go with whatever's cheap and easy yeah, and exactly. i'm like i'm not gonna go get an apartment that's like eleven hundred dollars a month i thought i killed this thing i don't yeah, i got a new phone yesterday and i really don't know how to do all this yeah i understand that so this will be like real casual we'll uh record as long as we have something to talk about um well, the, however you want to do this, I'm, I'm, um, I wasn't sure exactly what all you were wanting to, like, if we're, what, what you were going to want to talk about. Yeah, I'm not anticipating recording four hours tonight. I've got, <laughs> well, I mean, i got 30 years of stuff, but yeah. I don't know if you're wanting to focus in on any one thing. Well, usually what I do is we, we kind of start with, you know, how you got into music as a kid, mm-hmm. and then basically from there, like, you know, I mean, I've heard the show. I know how you yeah, do it, well, but sure I didn't know if and you wanted to. It, it depends on how in-depth you want to get. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, that's, that's kind of how we start, and yeah. it just kind of depends on – every interview is different because sometimes we talk – depends on who I've got here. Like John Bowman, me right. and him might talk about other stuff besides my right. stuff. He'll be, he'll actually be here tomorrow. He-Man, um, He-Man action figures. <laughs> yeah. He's coming tomorrow. We're going to record again because he's getting ready to release a single, and – He's like, man, I want to do a podcast. I'm like, okay, well, let me get Eric to come over, and that way we can do something a little bit different, you know? Because yeah. I've done, I had him on several times already. Me, I told Jeff I was doing this yesterday, and he talked about he how much fun he had doing it and how good he thought it turned out. Yeah. I think he'd like to do it again. He was oh, like, I'd, I'd love to Because he kind of joked, he's like, man, he's had John on like five times. <laughs> <laughs> well, John's just all, he's always ready to do it. I mean, I've, I've told him he might as well just be my co host, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I could yeah. make him my co host. He could be on every week. Yeah. But, uh, uh, and me and John are just we're such good friends. Me and we didn't even meet until a few years ago, and like just became instant friends. I yeah, I don't know. He's like, a nice guy. I've always liked just, John. I, I can't remember when I met him, but I mean, I've known him for God, 
15 years at least. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's like, you know, people kind of come in and out of your yeah. orbit. So we're, we're not like super tight or nothing, but we've always, you know, he, he had his run with the band. Yeah. So. You need anything to drink? I got water. I got I got some beers in there. I got room temperature water. I got cold water. Um, um, I might, if, if it's cool, I might steal one of them beers. Yeah. If you, I don't want to drink all your beer. But might it might it might help me become a little more. Yeah, I mean, I always like to have a couple, a couple before, <laughs> a little, you know, while, while I'm doing the podcast. I just cause thank it, you. For me, it's like it's just hanging out with with somebody and talking and getting to know somebody and getting to know their story. So I always feel like you know having a couple of beers along with it's just kind of a natural thing. Opens up the whatever's. Yeah. So anyway, and also it, I, it's kind of warm up here. I'm probably. I don't think it's that warm. I've been kind of cleaning up a little bit, so I'm probably a little bit more sweaty than, I'm still than you drinking are. Drinking in all your stuff. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in here for man, sure. That's cool spread. I got man. way too much stuff. Eric's like, man, I, I feel bad for your daughter whenever you pass away. I'm like, uh, well, you know, maybe she'll make a little bit of money off some of this stuff. But, I, I'm, I'm kind of. Di- I mean, this is horrible. I don't. I kind of dodged a bullet with that. So I don't talk. I'm like completely estranged from my family. So yeah. It's like, and my mom has this house full of just junk. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just stuff. Yeah. I think I'm getting ready to pare down some of my stuff because I got like over on that shelf behind that sheet that I got up on. There's boxes full of stuff. And it's yeah. just like, I, I want to get rid of it because I, I basically, when, when I do pass, I want my daughter to be able to just worry about her records. <laughs> well, man, you're 40. What did you say? 47? Yeah. I'm 49. So yeah. I don't think either one of us are in any, any, any real danger of passing. I hope, I hope not. But you never know. But anyway, I, I told her <laughs> recently we had, had, had a little. We had a, we had a small talk about my records, and I just told her that basically, when I passed, I want her to talk to one of my friends that would know something. How old is she? She's uh, 19. 19. Yeah. See, my kids are 26 and 28. Mm-hmm. So, because I don't have a lot of stuff that's worth a lot, I've got a few records that are worth something. There's a lot that's on that isn't. There's some stuff in there that would be worth some stuff, but you know, I've always had cats, so oh, you can oh, see the yeah. nicks on the sides of some of those. Yeah, As a matter of fact, it, I usually have like a sheet hanging up over that, so the cat can't mess with it. That's common. Uh, you, you know, do you know Eddie Ford? Mm-hmm. From well, I don't really know him. I know, I know of him. Yeah. He's got like seven cats, mm-hmm. but you go to his house, you never guess. Because they all hide, and he keeps his house, like, immaculately clean. Yeah. You know, it don't, you know, you'd think with seven cats, you'd walk in the door and go, God damn. But you ne- never, not, yeah. not even a hint, you know. And there's, like, one or two that'll come out and say hello. The rest are always hiding. But they get in, they've gotten into his records. He's had problems with that. Yeah, yeah. That, that's one of those things. And I've, the current cat I have, she's around here. She might come out. I didn't, I decided not to put her up. But she kind of, she's not very social. Um, but anyway, I've I've kind of done a pretty good job of keeping her away from them, but it's just some of them are, you know, I've got a few over there that are in really good condition though that are worth some money, and and I just want her to talk to somebody that would know something before she does. I mean, she might might still sell them as a as a lot to a record store or whatever. That would be fine, whatever she does with them. But she needs to at least. Uh, I told her she needed to talk to my friend Matt because he can make sure that the stuff that needs to get to certain people gets to certain people. Right, I got a right. lot of local stuff that that doesn't need to be sold. It needs to go to whoever was in those well, bands or, yeah. you know. And, of course, my my friend Matt's probably going to want first pick of it. <laughs> it's always good to have, you, you, you know, you got to have somebody that's going to be, like, clued in and go, I'll just be holding on to that. <laughs> yeah. And I also told her that, you know, I'm, I'm currently, I'm through – I think I'm through C and then just random stuff cataloging it all on Discogs. Oh, are you doing yeah. that? Yeah. 
Um, but I'm, I'm slowly like taking a handful every now and then and just going through and putting them all in. It, it's time consuming because you got to find the exact, if you want to do it right, find the exact pressing and everything. Yeah, you know, I, I realized that recently. I didn't realize it got that detailed there. You can look at the, in the runoff matrix, the number. Yeah. You know, yep. and, That's and, usually and you where, figure where out where it was pressed is. at yeah. and all that stuff. And I'm just like, God, damn. sometimes it's difficult to figure out like, cause some of them don't make any sense to me. And some of them are just hard to decipher what's actually scratched into the, or, you know, yeah. anyway, but we'll, we'll get started. Um, and I'll probably use some of what we were talking about to kind of lead up to the beginning, but I'm talking to, uh, Russ Ward. And, and when I first met you, I, I met you as mad brother. Ward. Okay, when, when was this? So we played, uh, it was probably like 93 when we first started playing Heretics. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was around that time, so probably 93, 94 is when we first played our shows, first shows together. I'm trying to remember when this one was. Um, oh, yeah, that's, was, that was, that's Halloween. That's yeah, Halloween that 90. Halloween. I think yeah, it's 93, because you know, yeah. I think by 94 we had changed to the crusties so this one was also i guess in 93 yeah. as well okay now see i've got both of these flowers yeah. by the way I, I made copies of them in case you didn't have them i was um, gonna give them to you but, and you can take them even if you do you remember to. either one of these shows see we're, we're talking about something that no one can see but yeah <laughs> i remember this show very well the halloween halloween uh, 90 we'll say that's 93 yeah i'm, I'm pretty sure it's 93 um i remember that one very well because during our second song uh our singer guitarist broke a string and he put a string on real quick and was trying to get, he just couldn't, I could not get into tune. And it was like three minutes and, and we just decided. Yeah. I, to I was going to say, I, I can rem- <laughs> I remember that. I remember Jeff busting the lights above yeah. the stage. They, they played with the fluorescent light mm-hmm. on above the stage. And I remember that. I don't remember our set at all. Yeah. <laughs> no. Oh, you, you know, actually I, I have, I do have a, I don't remember our set, but I remember who we had playing drums with us, and it was on a 
tryout basis and we told him that and then we decided not to use them and he got really really <laughs> really mad now but, that show i don't really remember um this I, the I, the sweaty monkey versus satan festival yeah i mean also I, at heretics and i can tell you stuff that i remember from it but ringworm those guys are some of those guys not in ringworm but in other bands they're still active down in florida and we've recently well i say recently it's been about two or three years since we've been down there but we played with those guys yeah you know here's what i remember about this show we ended up playing last if i remember correctly yeah and i want to say we only played four songs because if this is the show i'm thinking and i'm pretty sure it is that was the show where somebody threw a full pitcher of either beer or water on our bass player, Chris Wilson. Mm-hmm. Like, boom! And Chris was temporarily blinded, and he, you know, and he just sort of jacked his bass up and sidekicked who did it as yeah. hard as he could. And it happened to be a girl, oh. <laughs> and she went down. And, Actually, I think I remember this. I do think I remember this now. And when we were done. We were sitting in the, they had like a stock room that kind of we used as our yeah. dressing room. Yeah, I remember that. And we're sitting back there and this guy comes in and he goes, all right, who who kicked my girlfriend? And I just looked at Chris and pointed at Chris. And now Chris Wilson was a pretty big dude. Yep. Big imposing looking guy. And back then he had the Liberty Spike yeah. Mohawk thing. <laughs> and he just kind of looked at him for a second and kind of sized him up and then went, well, I guess she had it coming. She shouldn't have thrown that on you, you know, <laughs> whatever. And I was just like, really? And then we, he said he came down from Roanoke, Virginia to see us play. He oh, heard wow. about us and wanted to come see it. And I was like, well, I hope you got your money's worth. Four songs and your girlfriend got kicked. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's not something I feel good about. It's just, it's just something that happened. Yeah, yeah. But I don't remember a whole lot about that show. That, I think I do remember that, that incident, because that was, yeah. There was always but, some sort of incident at our shows back and then. And I'm trying to remember if Tex Vengali played that show or not. I know I was talking to my friend Matt. We were talking about some show that, now Matt was in SJA and not Popes on Dope, but he was talking about some show that we were supposed to play with them and they didn't get to show up. I think he might have been talking about this show, because like, I think he was there. Anyway, I went to school, high school here in Kings Mountain with somebody, a girl that played drums for Tex Svengali, okay. but had no idea. Um, so I'm pretty sure we they did not play that show because I would have known that night. Anyway, so it, so I, I got those out. So 93, I guess, is when we met. Yeah. Um, but we were never really friends. We've never really known each other that well. We, we just kind of, in passing. Well, I, was, I think I was kind of that way with everybody. I mean, um, I was I was, actually, I was talking to my kids about this recently we just went on this big long road trip and so we had a lot to talk about but uh i don't know are we jumping way far ahead i, I never we'll, really we'll felt back up in a minute. okay i you know i just i never really felt connected to the quote-unquote scene yeah uh, and as much as i played in charlotte with charlotte bands you could say i was a part of it but i really never thought of myself as a part of it i mean i wrote a song called kill the scene yeah <laughs> so you know i just uh it just wasn't it wasn't important to me as much to socialize yeah and i was kind of thinking about this this week when i was thinking about this interview and thinking about these shows and kind of thinking about how back when we were popes on dope, we were kind of sort of getting in with anti scene and the Furies and and Mad Brother Ward, and, and I think if if we had stayed the three piece that we were, we probably would have continued to play with those bands. But when we brought my d- brother in on drums and then Eric moved to guitar, it took a completely different turn and got a little bit more um, 
a little more indie rock sounding, I guess. And uh, well, a little bit more indie rock influence. I don't think that would have made much of a difference. Yeah. I think because um, we always liked you guys, like me and Chris. When I say we, me and Chris. Yeah. And, um, you know, and there weren't a lot of bands that we really had any kind of appreciation for. But, and I don't really know what it was that kind of, Chris was the one that I think found you first. Yeah. And was like, no, these guys are pretty cool. And so that's I how I remember it. You know, it's falling apart. And then us, and yeah, that up, had we, a we, big part of a lot we, of stuff fracturing. Yeah. We ended up at the milestone. And I think at that time, like, anti-scene wasn't playing milestone because bill flowers was running it yeah they had and a thing with bill so i think that was probably that was probably what it was is is that at that, that point the scene splintered a little bit well and we went one direction and you guys or i kind of stopped went the other direction well i wasn't in anti-scene obviously yeah you weren't in i was just doing my own thing and i just sort of stopped we just sort of just sort of ran its course mm-hmm. i had gotten married and had kids and went off yep. to try to live a life of domesticity understand that that's when failed i failed miserably that's when i took my break and that's exactly the same thing yeah i mean it's, i wouldn't say failed miserably the marriage did not last but i the think rest of this of whole era the but the early 90s is kind of like a lost generation in 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 charlotte music because you know i, I think we weren't all very well interconnected and you know, and there was a point when we all kind of came of a certain age where we all went off and yeah. people either went to school or got married or whatever. And it just sort of like, to me, it's kind of a hazy time that a lot it of people is. don't. I think it is. Refer back to or talk talk about much. That's like I was talking to one of my friends and he's like, oh, it was Rod, Roger Raymond. You probably know him. You'd know him if you saw him. Yeah, I'm um, bad with names. But we were talking about. Uh, heretics one day he's like does anybody even still talk about heretics i was like yeah man a lot of people you know talk fondly about those days it's like but it's a certain segment of people yeah and if you were there yeah but then again you know the old saying if you were there you wouldn't remember what is it if you if you remember it you weren't there yeah, exactly yeah. <laughs> well let, let's do back up now so when you were a kid and sort of my first question is always like what was the first thing about music that grabbed you? Like the big thing about music that made you sort of start paying attention to it? God, I, music has always been kind of first to primary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know why. I come from a kind of a sort of musical family. Um, my parents didn't like rock and roll. Mm-hmm. That's important in my development, too, because my mom was very religious. Yeah. And um, so she, you know she didn't care for even pop or anything i don't i don't know what she liked i mean you know she sang though she could sing but it was like choral singing like the mm-hmm. kind of almost operatic kind of thing yeah yeah and then my father could sing uh but he liked when he was a kid he liked buddy holly mm. and then he went in the army and when he got out of the army the british invasion the beatles thing and he he told me he's like i didn't like the beatles so he just sort of steered into country music so i always kind of had kind of an appreciation for country rooted mm-hmm. from yeah. those memories of you know i mean classic country i don't mean like oh yeah garth brooks yeah. <laughs> i got that, that bottom row of my records that's all my country records yeah. down there it's, i mean the old stuff is good oh yeah and people ignore it at their own ignorance but whatever but um you know, my dad got into, um, can't remember what they called it, the SPEBSQA or something, the 
barbershop quartet singing. Mm-hmm. There was a okay, like a there's like a barbershop club and like an international yeah. thing or whatever. And they were he was in the local chapter and. He grew the cool mustache, the you know what you would call now a limmy mustache, but you know it was like a barbershop, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Yeah. He had the look, and could sing. Uh, he can sing harmony, which and my daughter can sing harmony, and that's like some voodoo magic to me. Mm-hmm. And, and and you know, but I look at it like my my mom was talented. She played piano. She could sing. My dad didn't play an instrument, but could sing. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother who's four years older than me, um, is a natural drummer. Yeah. But he doesn't play drums. He played guitar. He switched to guitar when he was about 12. He's <laughs> like, I'm not making music on the drums. I'm, you know, and, it's yeah. like, and he's a, you know, I have this thing. He's a skilled guitar player mm-hmm. and he's very, very, very good. He has a virtuosic skill. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I say virtuosic, but I mean, it's, you know, he can do the heavy metal. That never appealed to me ever. Um, But his skill was, I mean, his talent was as as a drummer. Yeah, yeah. Does this, I have this thing about talent versus skill. Oh, I understand that. You know, you can, a skill is something you learn and acquire, but the talent he had was was something, you know, it's innate. Yeah. But mom really frowned on the rock and roll, but we still somehow, I don't know how we got records. See, I lived in a small town outside of Roanoke, Virginia, which is in and of itself a small city. Oh, yeah. yeah. And our television reception was very limited, so I only had one TV station until we moved away when I was 11. Mm-hmm. So I had to figure out new ways to entertain myself. So that's probably also a big part of it. It was just, you know, records if you could find them. Yeah. And initially, we just had some weird records. I have no idea where they came from. I was I was actually thinking about this just recently. We had a couple of singles and i don't know where they came from we had a single for mr blue sky by elo okay and we, this is you know this is what it was a new song right yeah. you know this is late 70s uh the single from a band called brownsville station mm-hmm. and this, the song was called lady put the light on me yeah and it's but the flip side was the song called rockers and rollers mm-hmm. and that song man that was it we just i thought that was like the coolest thing in the world um you know, and then uh, we had these weird records. They were like compilations of. Uh, it was like a record that was like drag, drag racing, and surfing songs. Okay. And I don't think it was the original artists, but yeah, I've seen some of those records. I wouldn't yeah. have known. And somehow, I guess my dad knew. So I knew the names, the Beach Boys. I knew the names, Jan and Dean. Mm-hmm. Uh, somehow, we also, you know, I don't know where you learn Elvis, but Elvis was. I've never not known Elvis, you know? Well, he's pretty big back in the 70s. Yeah. I mean, I remember the day he died. Yeah. That's one of, you know, and I have an early memory. That's one of them. Um, You know, we knew who the Beatles were. I might not have known John, Paul, George, and Ringo, but I knew the Beatles. Mm -hmm. You know, I knew who the Rolling Stones were. I didn't know Mick and Keith, but I knew the Rolling Stones. And, you know, I remember it was like five, whatever it was. was Mid-70s. Um. But there's something, you know, there was something that I've, I've thought about this is like, you know, there was something about rock and roll. I think it being almost kind of like mom kind of, she didn't really forbid it, but you could tell she was not cool with it. Mm-hmm. And that just made you want it more yeah. than you want, you know. <laughs> and then the worst thing that could possibly happen to my mother happened. We discovered Kiss. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, that was that was big for me as a kid. I think of our generation. Yeah, you know, especially if you if you were you know young in the late seventies. 
I was gonna say it's kind of like Elvis. At one point, you turn on the TV and Kiss was on the TV. When a Kiss, lot. when yeah, or you know, it was the find the old member sixteen magazine. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we we'd have to like confiscate our lunch money to save up money to like buy a sixteen magazine so we could have pictures of Kiss to look at, yeah. you know, or something. <laughs> yeah. And then eventually, it was like, okay, well, maybe we could buy a Kiss record, you know. And somehow, my brother got some early on, you know. That just turned into a thing. It was it just became a major obsession, you know. At that age, you know, everything was kiss, 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 kiss. Yeah, same for me. When I when uh, the way I got my first Kiss record was my cousin gave me. I think my cousin liked Kiss at one point, but I was over there and I must have just bugged him to death to play that record, and he just told me I could take it home with me and I could keep it, and it was a <laughs> double platinum. Oh hell yeah! And so I played the hell out of that record. Mm-hmm. I loved it. I still have the first Kiss record he, we ever got. That we, you know, the one he got when we were yeah. little kids. I still have it. I, I've got a copy of Double Platinum, but I don't think it's that original copy that I had. So somewhere along the way, that one got missing. Well, that that started my Kiss nerddom that exists to this day. I'm actually starting a podcast of my own. Mm-hmm. Where we're going to talk about Kiss. Yeah, I had that written down to talk about too, and I, I actually listened to the first episode. So the story you just told, I heard. Just oh, you already a couple heard of nights that? ago. Yeah, he posted it on uh, the Patreon. Oh, that's right. That's so right. I, got, I listened to it a couple of nights ago. It was, it was good. Yeah, I, it, I look forward to listening. I to hope more it'll of it. get better. We uh, we just we want to pull out more of the facts and try to figure out the the what might be true versus what might be the you know Kiss have their own. Mm-hmm you know version of the facts that may not exactly be accurate oh, yeah. but whatever <laughs> yeah and that was like i had that written down like towards the end just sort of to remember to talk about it but since we're talking about it let's go ahead and so i was going one of the things i wanted to ask was how would it because there's probably a bunch of kiss kiss podcasts out there so the way this one's going to be a little bit different than the other kiss podcasts out there like you said you're kind of going to look for it looks the truth kind of, to it but what 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 exactly you're going to do it album by album yeah album okay. by album kind of just tracking the history of their whole thing mm-hmm. and kind of how it relates because i think in a lot of ways you know there is a dismissal because kiss is kiss you know when they, they you know the worst thing that ever happened to kiss was kiss fans yeah. and the worst thing ever happened to kiss fans was kiss yeah so i don't know i mean it's like we call we're we're, we're proudly declaring it a kiss nerd yeah. podcast i was gonna i was gonna emphasize that as well kiss nerd so, so, so you're this, gonna delve this, into the, the nerd, intricacies of the yeah, albums nerd the nerd that, nerd we're not ashamed you know i grew up with it and uh it's it's gonna be critical too it's not gonna be like oh it's all great because it isn't and um you know, it's just gonna we're gonna take it each album as as it comes and yeah. discuss the details of what what was going on and how they got into where they were at any given time. Because a lot of people miss the fact that, and you know, and this is you could say this is opinion. I don't think it necessarily is. I think it's kind of true. I mean, Kiss were kind of like the penultimate DIY band. I mean, mm-hmm. they really didn't have. Everyone thinks that they had some big money machine behind them. No, they did it all themselves. To they were kind of doing it themselves, and they well, they had money behind them. They had a guy with a uh, uh, an American Express card in, in, in a day when there was no credit limit, mm-hmm. and the guy wasn't afraid to to use it. So, uh, you know, money was being invested in them, but they weren't really recouping that investment. Mm-hmm. And there was a point when it almost just sunk under its own weight. Right around the time they did Kiss Alive, and yeah. had that album flopped, they would have it would have been over. It had been yeah. the end of the game. 
But whatever. That's more, we're not going to talk Kiss Nerd on this. <laughs> you already got people turning this off, going, "God damn it!" <laughs> well, I, I did. I enjoyed the first episode because it was basically you guys talking about how you got into Kiss. Yeah, and you talked. You sort of talked about some things that I think you'll go back to down the road. Uh, but I, I, I did. I really enjoyed like hearing all that. You know, cool. How what it meant to you guys? Because of course, growing up, Kiss was huge. To me. It was huge, and you know, I. I Going tra- if we're tracing now though, getting away from the kiss thing. I, 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 moving on as we got older, mm-hmm. music stuff. I, I I've thought about like when did you know when, when initially when I first heard of punk rock, it would have been somewhere around about the time I was about eight or eight nine ten years old. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but the first thing that really registered with me there was a. A newspaper article on a local band up in Roanoke called Luke Puke and the Vomit. Oh, wow. can't make this stuff up (laughs) and i read it and the whole thing kind of scared me i didn't get it you know i was reading the description of you know it's violent and tuneless and blah 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 Mm -hmm. you know now i'd be like oh man that sounds cool you know but when you're when you're 10 you just you know like what the hell is this but um so i kind of tuned out the punk rock thing and kept this kind of you know naive um forced ignorance on the subject for a good long while Mm -hmm. after that but it would seep in in ways that i wasn't conscious of until i got older yeah i think kind of the same for me and and i'm I'm a couple years younger than you i think i was also the oldest of me and my brother so i didn't have an older brother so i got into things i think a little bit later maybe Um, but you know i think the time that we grew up with mtv especially there was a lot of stuff on mtv early on that was like punk rock but we didn't realize it at the time, and it kind of seeped in through the through the cracks. And well, you go back and, and realize, oh, that's I was already listening to that stuff back then. I didn't have MTV initially. Um, we didn't have cable like where we lived. Like I said, I had the one TV station mm-hmm. until my mom remarried and we moved away from Roanoke to Chesapeake, Virginia, which is just outside of Norfolk. And we still didn't. There, they were wired. We didn't. You know, even if we wanted cable, it wasn't wired. The neighborhood yeah, wasn't wired yeah. for it or whatever. There were kids that had like you remember the old satellites back in the mm-hmm. old days. They yeah, were like satellites, gigantic yeah. like the NASA Change satellite the in your the backyard. Thing yeah. yeah, yeah, that was some nouveau riche shit back then. <laughs> so we knew a couple of guys that had those. But um, once we moved down to Chesapeake, and all of a sudden I had five channels. It was like, what the hell am I going to watch? <laughs> and then they grounded me off a of TV because I wasn't going out to make friends. And you know my grades started to suffer. I kind of mm-hmm. got more internalized, you know, and so. And when you couldn't watch TV, what do you do? You listen to your records, you know, and I'm starting to build my little record collection finally. And, yeah. you know, buying my circus and hip parader magazines, mm-hmm. you know. And so, you know, I was trying to be a little Johnny Metalhead, I guess. <laughs> but I was listening to a radio station while we were up there. And there was a DJ at night. Her name was Carol Taylor. And her, her radio name was Carol Hell Yeah Taylor. <laughs> and she would play left of the dial stuff mm-hmm. she was probably about 23 and was playing the i guess the college rock of the time 
and she had a show called the American Beat. She did it nightly where she would just do a showcase of a band every night. And then she had like a, I don't remember, I guess it was Sunday night. She had a full two hour show mm. that they let her do. And that's where I would hear stuff like, uh, you know, REM when they were brand new, the mm. DBs, all these, you know, she was patching the Carolina thing. She was always going down to Chapel and talking about that stuff. Yeah. Um, let's active. Mm. But she was also playing stuff like the blasters. She played Lou Reed and she would play the Velvets. Mm-hmm. You know, where, you know, I was listening to the Velvet Underground on the radio, which I didn't think anything of at the time. But looking back, I realized they never yeah. got played on the fucking radio. Yeah. But here they were. I was getting to hear it. So I was getting an appreciation for it. I wasn't going out and buying those records, but I, you know, I knew those songs and I was liking them. Uh, and like I said, it wasn't until I got older I looked back and realized, oh, yeah, it was seeping in. You know, mm-hmm. kind of subversively, which I think was her whole thing. It was like she's just trying to subversively push this music into the consciousness of people, and it it worked. Um, I just recently – she passed away in the 90s from cancer, and I found out about it, and I was – I got this weird hobby of finding celebrity you know, graves mm-hmm. or people yeah, that were yeah. notable in some way, and I wrote up and found her grave recently. Okay. That was kind of a thing for me. Yeah, I noticed on your recent trip, you took posted a lot of pictures from different graves. Like, yeah, that's a weird hobby I got, but I enjoy doing it. Yeah, that's. I, I was thinking about that when I saw them because I, I knew you took that road trip with with Cody and your daughter, and I was like, you know, that's that's kind of cool just to go like sightseeing like that and see yeah. and see the cool rock and roll sites and mm-hmm. the, you know the wrestling graves and all that stuff. That was that's just so different than what. I would think to do with my daughter, but she's not really into that kind of stuff either. So, right, right. Well, I mean, my kids are, but not as by as deeply. Well, Cody is. My, my daughter's kind of getting into it, but um, you know, she likes. I think she just enjoys spending time. Yeah. You know, which yeah. is a cool thing to have. So I'm I'm pretty lucky. My kids seem to like me, whereas you know, I don't I don't really have that with my parents. You know, yeah. and that's I think that's kind of a. You know, but that kind of played into again my musical development is having having mom always like no, mm-hmm. no, no, you know, and I'm like yes, 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 yeah, fighting I against was, it. I, I, I'm gonna say lucky, but you know, in a way, you, like you said, you kind of it kind of helped shape you the fact mm-hmm. that she railed against it. My my mom never really liked it that much. Like uh, my dad had a record collection. That I've I've inherited his collection. I mean, you know, he gave it to me a long time ago, um, and it had some pretty cool stuff in it, but it had some not so cool stuff in it, but you know, they, they never really were that su- or um, excited about me being into music, but they all also allowed me to do it. Like we used to practice up here when I was a teenager, even when I moved out and got married for a little while, the accents practiced here. Okay. Even, you know, after I didn't live here. Well, that's, that's interesting. Cause like, I, I didn't think of that, but you know, they let me practice at the house with my first band. Mm-hmm. Um, so in their own way, they were supportive, but you know, maybe not, it wasn't exactly what they wanted me to do. <laughs> right. Well, same here. I, I kind of, I'm, 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 I'm trying to follow like a little timeline in my head mm-hmm. here. I, I'm um, sorry if I'm messing you up. No, so. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm, I just, you just made me think of something that I had not even considered the fact that, you know, they let me do this at some point. Um, but coming through high school and getting, I can remember being really disillusioned by the time of the late eighties and just not liking anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't, you know, a big, like, I, I, I'm, and I'm relating this to the fact my dad said he came out of the army and Beatlemania hit. And he was like, I didn't like the Beatles. Mm-hmm. 
what makes me relate to it is, you know, hair metal era hit. And, you know, I didn't like any, I was like, and, and, and Guns N' Roses became really popular. Yeah. But it took them a year to get popular. A lot of people forget the album. It's been oh, yeah, out like yeah. a year before it came out. You know, I can remember the summer. I remember getting mad when they got popular. <laughs> well, <laughs> I didn't like it to begin with. I, and and I, I didn't know a lot about stuff, but I knew enough to know, like, uh, to me, they sounded like Nazareth. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, uh, want to listen to Nazareth? Well, listen to fucking Nazareth. Yeah. So I didn't really, I didn't like the singer. I was just like, everyone was, you know, I didn't care for it. I didn't like... Um, any of the any of that stuff that was getting really popular, the White Snake and all that yes, stuff. Yeah, well, and, that but, I mean, I like White Snake now, but I did. <laughs> I still don't like that one album. Yeah. Oh yeah, I understand that. You know, I like the earlier stuff. The earlier stuff is much better. Yeah. And I love it. Uh, I love that version of Deep Purple that he was in. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite version yeah. of Deep Purple. Yeah, mine too. So, uh, but just at that time, you know, it just wasn't. That, it yeah. wasn't hitting me in a way that. Um, I felt like, you know, I just felt like completely disenfranchised. I'm like, I didn't like top 40 music and I didn't like the heavy metal music. And then this alternative that was now rising out of the ashes of new wave. I didn't care for that so much. There was stuff that I would kind of pick out of each of it that I liked, but I was just kind of like, well, there's just nothing, you know, nothing for me. And, um, you know, I had stuff that I liked, and it was not cool stuff, so I won't tell you what it was because I won't embarrass myself. <laughs> but um, my friend Brad's probably listening to this going, I know! <laughs> um, you talked to Brad from yeah. Blood Red River. Um, I remember being in high school and this guy named Mike going, we're lucky. This is like... L- L.A. Guns and Cinderella are like the Led Zeppelin and the Who of our generation. <laughs> I love those bands, but I had to laugh at that. <laughs> exactly. I was like, at the time, I was like, dude, if you really believe that, wait 20 years and you're going to be very sadly disappointed. Yeah. I knew it then. And, um, you know, I just, I, I had developed this really kind of dark sense of humor that I think was also being, starts, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this because this is all stuff that pointed me in a certain direction. Mm-hmm can remember really hating george michael for some reason yeah because that was really popular i thought of this the other day i don't i don't know what made me think of it i can remember being in 10th grade and we had a writing assignment and i had to write we had we could write a short story about anything we wanted Mm -hmm. and really what she was grading was just the form and structure of it right right? so i wrote the (laughs) i wrote a short story about a guy that goes to a george michael concert and kills him and like shoots him in from the crowd i'm like you know that'd give me in a lot of trouble today i don't i think if yeah. that if i wrote that today i'd probably get taken seriously probably taken to a principal or something but it was it was funny you know it was meant to be funny yeah i just hated all music at that point i was just really disenfranchised and then um i started to listen to some metallica because when i first heard metallica with uh ride the lightning mm-hmm. now this would have been when i was still living in chesapeake we had moved from Chesapeake to Charlotte. I should probably throw that in. I moved here in 85. So, but while I was still in Chesapeake, a guy bought them Ride the Lightning record because it, he looked at it and went, oh, it's got a, oh, I think they covered Kansas's Fight Fire with Fire. <laughs> you put it on, it's like, it's no, yeah. no, <laughs> no. And we had nothing to reference what we were listening to. Yeah. We, that was some, like, that sounded like it came from Mars, you know, mm. and it was, we just had absolutely no frame of reference for it. We didn't know hardcore. We didn't know, yeah, you know, 
new wave of bread. I, I didn't know any that of that stuff shit. Getting played on the radio at that point. Yeah, it was like, and then we were like, "What the hell is this? This isn't even music. This isn't even a song. They're not even trying." You know, that's how we heard it. So we kind of dismissed that, and so it took me a couple of years after, and I had moved to Charlotte, and somehow found it. Uh, I can't remember the timeline exactly, but I found I, I, I finally heard Master of Puppets, which had already been out for a while. Mm-hmm. And got into that and retroactively started getting into the Metallica thing. But I didn't like Thrash. I didn't like Anthrax. I didn't like Megadeth. I didn't like Slayer. Still don't like any of those bands. Okay. I still like Metallica up to that point. Yeah, yeah. And then they made the Garage Days record. Mm -hmm. They did the Misfits thing. And now, like so many people my age and that generation... That was kind of the door. Yeah, exactly. We, we talk about that a lot. The Metallica with, you know, just you'd see them in, in the magazines, like Circus Magazine wearing a Misfit shirt. And, and it's like, what's that? And then they covered those songs on that record. And it's like, oh, okay, now I need to buy these records. I need, well, to, I need to hear what these bands sound like. I didn't, you know, and it's not a cool thing to admit, I don't think, because, you know, you're finding it through a very mainstream channel. Mm-hmm. But that was the only channel I had at that point. Yeah. I had an older brother, but he didn't, you know, he wasn't going to clue me into this stuff because he didn't know and I, we were not really living you know we were kind of estranged at that point anyway um but i found danzig released their first album mm-hmm. found that on my own mm-hmm. i had no clue about the connection between all that and it was a kid at school that was i, I knew a kid a kid in my school was like a big punk rock kid and he had a mohawk, which was super radical in 1988, yeah. 87, 88, whatever it was. And uh, he was a big guy. His name was Scott. And he goes, well, man, you like that Danzig record, right? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, you know, Danzig was the singer for the Misfits. I'm like, who are the Misfits? He's like, you know that song, Last Caress? It's on the mm. Metallica. I'm like, yeah, that was the Misfits song. So then it was like, ah, you know. And then you had to go find that. Like you said, you, you had to go find your... Yeah, Misfits album or cassette back yep. then, <laughs> and that what that's what opened the door. And I started. He was letting me borrow his stuff. So the earliest punk rock that I started listening to would be like the Misfits, all the what I call bottom shelf stuff, mm-hmm. easily accessible. Yeah, um, the Exploited. He was yeah. a big Exploited fan, so I listened to that. Uh, the first Agnostic Front record, mm-hmm. which I still love. I don't like any of their other stuff really, but I yeah. like that first record. Yeah. Um. You know, minor threat. Minor threat, yeah. Just, of course, the Sex Pistols. Black Flag. And, uh, yeah. Well, you know, I didn't, initially, I didn't like Black Flag. And okay. I've come to love Black Flag. Like, that's one of the few bands where I'm one of those weirdos that likes everything that band's ever done. Yeah. Including the reunion record. Okay. And a lot of people don't, but yeah. I'm like, it's a Black Flag record. Yeah. We, we can, I'll, I got a whole <laughs> long, I, that, that's a whole nother thing. I'll, I'll go deep into that if you want. But, um, but, you know, I'm getting all this stuff. And uh, went to go see my first punk show at the original 4808 Club in on 4808 Central Avenue. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that place? No, I never went there. And um, saw Misguided Youth. And the opening band was this band called Slam Chowder. <laughs> Did you ever hear those no, guys? No. I, they were played, they like I saw, local? Huh? Were they, they were local? Or? Yeah, I think I, I, they played. The only two shows I can remember them playing was that one, and they opened a show for Anti-Scene. Okay. I didn't see the one where they opened for Anti-Scene, but I remember them being on the flyer. Yeah. I don't even know if I went to that show. It was like 90, 
one, I think, when I went to my first punk rock show okay. in Charlotte at the Milestone, like a Sunday matinee show. Well, that that followed shortly thereafter. I, I did one of those. Um, saw um, um, I'm having an Alzheimer's moment uh, from Myrtle Beach. Send in the clowns. God, um, this sucks. I hate when I forget stuff. Myrtle Beach. They were Myrtle Beach punk band. They had that record, Send in the Clowns with a K. And they were mocking the KKK with it. uh, No, I can't think of their name, but I I I played them on the podcast before. God damn it. (laughs) I hate when I do that. How can Uh, I forget this? I can can um, see them in my head playing live and thinking they were cool. Anyway, I saw I that man. Mike Thrower made me aware. Oh, Thrower, no, yeah. and Clayton knows because he was friends with those guys. Mike, if, if Mike Thrower is listening right now, yeah. he's yelling. Yeah, at he's screaming at those. Um, saw them at a Sunday matinee. And then I was supposed to go see Anticine that summer, summer of 89, when they kicked off their first tour they ever did. Mm-hmm. They did a little East Coast tour, and this was the kickoff show for it. And I don't remember what happened, but the day of the show, something came up, and I couldn't go. I was really dejected about this. But I, oh, I heard the record already i forgot to tell that part I, the night we went to go see misguided youth mm-hmm. my friend scotty's like well here this is something you'd probably really like and he gives me a copy of vp royalty yeah and i take it home and i'm still living with my parents right so i have to go sneaking upstairs <laughs> you know and i put that record on and it's just so loud you know the surface noise mm-hmm. or whatever it just seemed like i couldn't turn it down enough <laughs> yeah but I, I mean, it. I, that was a major. I still remember that. That was a big left turn moment. Hearing that, mm. just those opening noise, you know, that big noise opening at the beginning of NC Royalty. You know, I was like, I, I became obsessed with that. Finally, went to go see him uh, September. I want to say it was September second, eighty nine, at the Milestone. Mm-hmm. And you know, after that, you know, and I've talked about this before too. It was and, and I, it sounds cliche to say, but it's the truth. I mean, it, it was everything. It was over. It was like all my friends, to a certain extent, my family. Mm-hmm. Everything that I had known was that was gone, yeah. done. You know, I was off on this whole new trajectory. Mm-hmm. And what I look, I didn't register at the time, but looking back, I think one thing that really appealed to me about what Anacine was doing was that it was not uh it wasn't like the other punk rock I had been listening to mm-hmm. visually stylistically on any level these guys were just kind of working class guys they didn't do their hair up they didn't wear spiky jackets they didn't you know it was yeah it was very low to the ground earthy and it reflected probably and I didn't again this was subconsciously I was probably picking it up but it reflected more of a kind of a um, rural sensibility, if yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, and and that appealed to me, and it just seemed to me that it was different, and mm-hmm. it was different even amongst stuff that was already considered different. You know, so that was uh that was the big left turn, and um, 
you know, I mean, I wasn't like rejecting other, I was still trying to learn all yeah. the punk rock stuff too, but that was, that became Godhead. Yeah. Anton Cena, you probably heard, I, I told, talked about on the Jeff Clayton episode, but basically, you know, when we discovered Anti Scene, it was because we were going to, we had found Repo Record and we saw all these flyers. And so it was the day that we decided to buy an Anti Scene cassette. Me and my friend Matt both decided to buy it the same day. Like, we're, we're going to hear this band now. We met Jeff and Joe that day. And mm-hmm. it was like, they were super cool. And it was like, oh, these guys remind me of, you know, me and my, my family and my friends and stuff. It's, they, these are just regular guys. And it made us go, we've got to start a punk band now. Oh yeah. So yeah. it was, it was life changing for me too. You know, I'd already found all the, all the, like you said, the, those entry level punk rock bands. But anti scene showed me there was a lot more and that, that a lot of it was closer than I thought it was. And well, the thing I realized and I have, I like to make this point. I've done it before is I recognized later that anti scene were as influenced by black flag as they had been by Black Oak, Arkansas. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And the Black Oak, Arkansas part is what makes the whole thing spin in a different kind of way. Definitely, yeah. You know, to me, they'll always be infinitely more important than uh, another nameless band that come out of North Carolina that we won't talk about that might be bigger and have a cooler logo. <laughs> uh, around this time, I met Brad Mullins, a.k.a. Brad Fury. Mm-hmm who is now in Blood Red River, who you've talked to. But he was probably 16, I think, when I met him, and I might have been 18. Okay. We were working at a pizza restaurant together. Yeah. And he liked the Misfits, which I had never met anybody else that knew this stuff because my circle of people that I knew, obviously, they Mm. thought I'd lost my goddamn mind. (laughs) So I didn't know anybody that actually listened to this stuff. I mean, I knew people that – I knew people did, but Mm. I didn't know anybody. So me and Brad start talking and uh, got to be pretty good friends, you know, palling around a bunch and we would get off work and, you know, he would, might be grounded or something. So he couldn't do anything when he got off work. And so it would just be like, well, man, I don't want to go home. So we just sit on the parking lot, you know, get fill our cups up with some Coca-Cola and just, you know, hang out. There was, you know, and talk about, well, you know, what if we had a band, you know, and pretty soon we just started thinking well yeah what wait a minute what if we did that yeah you know and uh just started puzzling and piecing what we could with what we had and you know when you're young and hungry or whatever you want to call it eager and ready to go you find a way Mm -hmm. i mean we had nothing we had no money no equipment nothing (laughs) and somehow all this stuff sort of found its way to us yeah i don't really rightly know how but Brad eventually acquired a guitar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I acquired a drum kit. And we were back in my shed behind my parents' house, you know, running a single extension cord out there. Yeah. <laughs> and just, that's all I could do. And he, yeah. nah, 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 you know. So you started off as a drummer. Yeah, I yeah. was I, just because, I, you know, Brad got, Brad had a snare drum. But he seemed like he knew some chords on guitar. My my memory of this is kind of dim. My memory is I showed him how to make a power chord. Mm. Or maybe not. Maybe I showed him how to play Blitzkrieg Bop. Might have been what it was. Yeah. But literally, like, it seemed like a week later, he was all of a sudden, you know, he's writing his own stuff. Yeah. And it was good. And I was like, how do you do that? You know, it goes back (laughs) to just innate talent. Brad's the most talented person I've ever met in my life. Yeah. And 
and he's a great songwriter. He always has been. And it just, it was just like, he, he just writes something. And I'd, be, I'd look at him and go, what? How, how'd you do that? <laughs> I just, you know. And Brad's so aloof. He's just like, yeah, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, and I've always been like, ah, So I think, you know, eventually that got to be a, a friction point for us. But uh, I was playing the drum or quote unquote playing, you yeah. know. About all I could do. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so we started our first band and uh, started writing songs, and it, we called it Failure. Mm-hmm. We did not, there was a major label band called Failure that was rising around that same time, I think. So, not not to confuse, uh, not that anyone would, <laughs> yeah. the same band. It's all happening at the same time. So, I don't know really the timeline because it's just like when you're, you know, I dropped out of high school and like, I mean, the. I hate to say this because I don't mean this to sound the way it does. Part of the impetus for me dropping out of school was probably, like I said, having those pivotal moments where everything was just like, yeah, there's a different world out there and I, I can't, I can't not go there. Mm. So, you know, school stopped. That was done. And, um, met, you know, Joe Young was working for repo. Yeah. And was always super fucking cool. Yes, always you know? was. And uh, I mean, he he was cool to everybody. Always, his whole life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember walking in there one time and seeing Jeff in there, and I was like, "Hey, there he is. <laughs> there he is. Go talk to him." You know, I'm not gonna go talk to him. You go talk to him. I'm not gonna go talk to him. You know. And so we didn't talk to him. We were just like the scariest guy in Charlotte. And to me, you know, I I looked at Jeff and is like. This kind of whatever, you know, not rock star, so, yeah, but kind of like, like a, that. Yeah, sort of like a celebrity in a way. And he was, yeah. And so, you know, there's no way I was going to talk to him. And I can't remember how we started talking, but, um, oh, I do actually. So a friend of mine named Dave Weinkoop, and I didn't know him at the time, he mm. had a band called Fireball XL5. Yeah. And they made a little uh, kind of crude little comic book. That they put out at the record stores. It was like four pages mm-hmm. or something. Was, you know. I remember. I think I remember seeing those. And um, I thought, man, that's cool. You know, we should do that. And I talked. Brad. Brad's a great artist. He can draw. You know, he can, like I said, he's just multi talented. Can do anything. And, and I was like, we should do a comic book and do an anti scene comic book. And we started talking about ideas. And we came. I was like, well, let's. I was going to initially. You know, I came up with the two ideas. I was like, well, let's just do two of them. And they weren't supposed to be, but like the same kind of thing, six or eight pages. Mm-hmm. And we never did it. It was more of the idea. We started, you know, Brad drew some little ideas of what, the, you know, they would look like. And I started writing out the idea of a story and had a story where they were going to bust Gigi Allen out of prison. And another story where they were going to get killed a la easy rider style in the south and then come back as the walking dead (laughs) and kill the guys that had killed them Mm -hmm. just kind of stuff you know And that's, I think, how I started talking to Jeff, because uh, he called me. And I remember thinking that was about the coolest thing ever when he called me. I was just like, <gasps> yeah. So that's kind of what started our friendship, you know. And then I just I started following them around everywhere they play. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they found out I had a band, they were like, well, 
yeah, you're going to open for us. You know, we're like, <laughs> we're not ready. And he's like, well, get ready because it's going to happen yeah. July 13th. And I was like, oh, shit. And so we played our first show opening for him, and that was a big deal. Of course, me and Brad had both got kicked out of our houses at that point. Mm. And we, we, we played the show. I can remember afterwards going, you know, you're elated and you're on, you know, Cloud Nine. You just played your first show. You're yeah. excited. And you play, you know, you got to open for your favorite band and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, what do we do now? You know, where do we go? Where does nowhere to go? Yeah. You know, <laughs> just whatever. Around the same time, well, right before I dropped out of school, uh, you know, I had no friends. I I had transferred into Geringer High School. Mm. They had a radio broadcast elective course, and that was the only campus or only school or whatever you call it back then that had it. Yeah. And they let me transfer over there to do it. So that's what I was there for. And um, I didn't know anybody there. And there were these little heavy metal girls that let me sit with them at at lunch. And they had the old, remember Rip Magazine? Mm Mm-hmm. So that's all I did was sit and lunch. I didn't talk to them. I just flipped through their magazines. Yeah. I opened it up and I'm reading the letter section one day. And there's there's a letter from a guy saying he's going to kill himself on stage. It's called Gigi Allen. I'm like, what hmm. the fuck is this? And I was like, ah, did, did, you, see, did you see this? This guy's going to kill him? You know, and I didn't. So then I had to find Gigi Allen. Yeah. This is important because this kind of explains how I probably got to be the way I was. But, you know, <laughs> so then I had to find a Gigi Allen album. And even when I f- they had them at Repo, I didn't know that, you know, I, I knew Joe. I had not yet met Jeff at this point, but I didn't know that Anacene had any connection with Gigi whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So I'm finding all this independently and getting into it at the, all at the same time. You know, even when I found the first, when I, I found the the original Homestead copy of Freaks, Faggots, Drunks, and Junkies. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, I can't buy this. I can't yeah. buy it. Because it just looked too much for me. I didn't think I could <laughs> process it. And um, But eventually I got into that. So all that kind of came together, mm-hmm. you know, all in the same time. And it all made sense. And it all kind of, you know. And I got real combative then because I was kind of trying to emulate what I thought those guys were doing. Yeah, and then yeah. it became like very two-fisted, you know. Brad never was like that. You know, Brad was just like, man, why can't we just play our songs? Which is the correct way, because we could have probably had the same attitude without me being so. So, like, did you ever go out in the crowd? Well, I did with Mad Brother Ward. Yeah, yeah. I think I remember that. (laughs) Failure, though. um, We got banned from the milestone. We, you know, I, I don't remember all the specifics. I smashed a guitar and I had filled it with, uh, I had a theatrical smoke bomb in it. So I, I was going to blow up my cu- guitar mm-hmm. a la East Fraley, right? Yeah. <laughs> but this theatrical smoke bomb, this isn't like the little cherry bomb smoke bombs you buy for the 4th of July. This thing was like about four inches long. Oh. <laughs> and the thing blew it, made smoke that was so thick that you couldn't see two feet in front of you. And this yeah. is inside the milestone. <laughs> so I think they had a, I don't know if they had a fire alarm or what, but when we got, you know, we did their craziness. I think Brad stuck the mic in his butt. That got us in big trouble. Yeah. <laughs> but all this is going on. We get off stage. And who, was, the, who was running the milestone at this time? This was Penny and Maggie. Penny, Penny, uh, yeah. Ma- I don't think. Penny was very protective of her microphones. Well, well yeah. And, and, she, and she should be. And Penny has proven herself to be an incredibly sweet person oh, yeah. and incredibly generous. Mm-hmm. I can't say anything bad about her at all. 
but at that age, you're not thinking like, yeah. you know, you're not thinking about what this means to them. You're only thinking about what it means to you. Mm-hmm. You're very selfish at that time. So we do our thing and we get off stage and they got police department and fire to, you know, the police, police cars and fire trucks are all up and oh, down wow. like Carindale there <laughs> yeah. beside the milestone. <laughs> And uh, Maggie lines us up like, like, mm. like, you know, <laughs> on the wall behind, you know, the back wall behind the stage on the street, you know, wagging her finger at us, going, "I don't know what it is about you men that want to show your things." <laughs> I don't know. It, it, we were trying not to laugh, you know, but of course we got banned. <laughs> and uh, you know, um, then we played. Because of that, because of that, you know, obviously that got that got a lot of that made a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. And Fred Mills from Creative Loafing uh, kind of championed us a little bit. Yeah. And we got a call one day, and there used to be something called the Alternative Radio Coalition in mm-hmm. Charlotte. They're trying to bring alternative radio college I, radio. I, I used to DJ at, at WNCW yeah. every two or three weeks. Well, with that, this is nineteen. 19- 92 mm-hmm. and and i think what they did was they would have a keynote speaker come in and do a little i don't know speech of some sort mm-hmm. i imagine some sort of a and r guy or some sort of radio rep or whatever yeah. trying to give ideas of what you can do or whatever and then they would have a local band play that was their you know they do this once a month or once a quarter or whatever they did yeah well the day before one of these things were supposed to happen a band canceled and they needed a band and I think if I'm right, I'm pretty sure Fred Mills went, uh, 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 <laughs> I know a band. You guys want to come play this? Yeah. Yes, we do. <laughs> oh, yes, we do. Very badly. Yeah. So we came and by chance, this is where all this stuff kind of, this is weird how all this stuff threads together. Um, a guy was in town named Malcolm Tent. Mm-hmm. Malcolm was from Connecticut and ran a very important and famous record store up there called Trash American Style. And he had his own record label called TPOS. Malcolm is now currently the bass player in Anice. Mm -hmm. He has known them since 1985. When he's, he's originally from Florida, but he relocated to Connecticut and he was starting this whole thing up. And, you know, he's a very important and pivotal figure up in Northeastern punk rock, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, so he's passing through town and Jeff's like, Oh, you got to see these guys. So he brings them to the show and we do our thing, smash our guitars. That was our big thing. We always smashed our stuff. You know, Brad smashing a microphone with a brick. You know, <laughs> we played like the first song and it went from like 80 people to like 15. I mean, it was just like this huge <laughs> exodus out the door. They were just like, no. Yeah. And the one person that was up front going, yeah, was Malcolm. Mm-hmm. And then he was like, oh, I want to, I want to put out a record for you guys. And we're like, oh, this is going to be great. Yeah. Well, little did I know that very same afternoon, the other guys in the band had voted me out of the band and had not yet told me. <laughs> I think Brad kind of hinted at that on the podcast oh, when, when I talked to Blood Red River. But we didn't even go. go well, he might have a different story. This is how I remember it, though. You know, I'm not going to tell you that the, his story is wrong, and I'm not saying that my story is exactly correct. But this is how I remember it because I love Brad, and I mean, it's just you know, it's stupid to now. It's just like, but at the time, it's just like, yeah. you know, 
but I could see why they were just sick of my shit because I was always like aggro as fuck. I was just like, oh, we're going to kill everybody and make them all, you know, eat their own entrails. And, da, 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 da. and they're like, well, how about we just play a really good show? Mm-hmm. No! You know. So, of course, they're going to be like, oh, you got to go, dude. We were just tired of you. But they're in for this record now was me because I was a little bit tighter with Jeff. Mm-hmm. And thereby, that was the connection to Malcolm. So... Um, we go and record this thing up at Peninsula, which was where everybody recorded back in the day. It was the basement studio in Lake Norman and, uh, turned out okay. They send it off to Malcolm and the day after we record though, then, then it was, well, we don't need you anymore. Mm -hmm. You know? And then I, that's where I was like, you know, well, what am I, what am I going to do now? And Jeff goes, you know, Jeff was kind of in the middle because he was moderating because he was friends with those guys. And, of course, yeah, he was friends yeah. with me. He's like, man, why don't you just do your own thing? Well, that hadn't even occurred to me, you know. I'm like, well, what do I do? He's like, well, why don't you find some people and make a band, record something, and send it to Malcolm and see what he thinks. Mm-hmm. So, literally, that's kind of what happened. I found a guy named Tom Nally. I tried to get another guy to play second guitar he's since passed away his name was dan um greg clayton who was drumming for anacene at this point jeff's little brother mm-hmm. he volunteered to play drums and we were like well we'll just double up the bass ourselves you know sat down with tom one weekend wrote three songs mm-hmm. two songs wrote two songs Went and practiced it the next weekend and went in the studio the weekend after that. Oh, wow. And we did it all in four hours. Now, the second side, though, was all improvised. It ended up being four songs on the record. But the first, it was going to be a single, two songs, Hate It and Take You Down. And then the second side, yeah. And then the second side was all improvised. The song Going Crazy was the song that I took. It was the one song we didn't record with Failure. Me and Brad had written it, and I figured, well, I wrote the words. Brad wrote the music. And I figured, well, it was as much mine as it was his. Yeah. And I should have given him credit, but, of course, I was being an asshole. <laughs> the wisdom thing was just me trying to come up with a fourth song, and it fell apart. And and then when we were doing the um, – we were going to do the – we were doing a mic check for the vocals, and I just started playing around doing the wrestling thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Jeff goes, hey, you know, we ought to think about that for a second. Maybe we could use some of that and put it on the record. Yeah. And that's how the whole wrestling thing started. Mm -hmm. Because it just started as me just, you know, the test one, two. Let me tell you something, Daddy. Sunday afternoon, bell time at 315. I'm going to find you, put you in the cage, Daddy, and wrap you up in a pencil. You know, and do that. And he goes, man, you want to do that. And so that's how the wrestling thing came together. Here's the way it is. Let me lay it on the line. You got to learn to love it. Because this is the only thing you got. And it's the best thing going today, brother. It's Mad Brother War. Tell them about it, Mad Brother. What it's all about is a bunch of kids with funny haircuts talking pseudo-political bullshit they know little or nothing about. Well, let me tell you what, kids. Pack it up and go home because what you're listening to now is the most handsome man in the underground today. Woo! Whatever you need, hit it! Hit it. 
And I sent it to Malcolm, and he said, yeah, he put it out. Which was like, you know, that was huge. Yeah. And didn't you say that Jeff came up with the idea for the name as well, Mad Brother War? No, well, okay. Yeah. I didn't want to be the vocalist, but that I, I took that role by default. Mm-hmm. And the one thing me and was initially it was me and Tom thought, okay, well, it's going to be me and you, and anyone else will be revolvable, you know, whatever you call it, replaceable, yeah. rotating. We didn't expect to have a quote-unquote proper band. Mm-hmm. Actually, we didn't expect to do anything but record this record, honestly. But the member of the Ward idea, Jeff gave me that nickname – we used to work together in a warehouse for a very, very short period. And, uh, you know, you're just talking about dumb shit when you're working together. Yeah, yeah. We were talking about wrestling, and I was like, well, what, what would you call yourself if you, were, if you were a wrestler? You know, and that turned into a thing. He, yeah. And I don't remember what he said, but he was like, he goes, but I know what they'd call you. And I was like, what? And he goes, Mad Brother Ward. I'm like, why? He goes, because you're always bitching about something. <laughs> so Mad Brother Ward stuck. And that was, then we thought, okay, well, my brother Ward and this whatever's. Yeah. And we were like watching this old, this eighties movie called street trash, kind of a cult film. Mm-hmm. And that's where that came from. It was like, Tom was like, oh, street trash. That sounds like some bad LA band. <laughs> and I went, yeah, it could be our really bad band. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we laughed about it and then we went, Hmm. And it was Greg he went, no, nah, man, it's the screaming street trash. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't come up with any of that. That was Tom came up with street trash. Greg made it screaming street trash, and Jeff gave me the name Mad Brother Ward. So you know, we just puzzled that together, and there it was. Yeah. Then me being a shit, thought, okay, well, Malcolm, if you're going to put this out, maybe because my understanding was he was going to put out both records simultaneously: the failure record and the Mad Brother Ward record. Because, you know, we recorded the the failure stuff in June, at the end of June, and I recorded the Mad Brother Ward stuff like two or three weeks into August. Mm-hmm. So they're real close together. Yeah. And I was like, well, take my records and bookend their box. When you send them their box of records, bookend their box of records with my record. So the first record they pull out of their box of records is me. <laughs> and I didn't want them. I, I did all this in secret because I didn't want anyone to know I was doing it. Because, A, I didn't know for sure that Malcolm would even agree to do it. And, B, I wanted, you know, I just wanted the mm. element of surprise. So, but Malcolm decided that he didn't he didn't see as much in the failure recording as he did in the Mad Brother Ward recording. And so he didn't end up doing their record at all. Yeah. I didn't think that there was a record, and that so. was that was the big you know the big victory between the war between me and those guys. Which no, I just you know I feel shitty about it, but that's just how it played out. Yeah, and you know, truthfully, you know, what should have happened should have been the failure thing because I think me and Brad always had great chemistry with each mm-hmm. other. You know, it's like the stuff he's really good at, I'm not good at. But the stuff he's not good at, I was good at, you know. And it would have been a stronger, probably more successful, whatever kind of thing had we, you know, not been, you know, we were still coming out of, you know, you're still a teenager. Yeah. You're still trying to figure out your shit and you don't, you don't have that maturity to stop exactly, and yeah, think that yeah. stuff through. So for whatever quote unquote success I had with this, I think had we stayed the course with what we had originally, it would have been had more of an impact. Yeah, yeah. 
but that's my fault. So by the time you recorded that failure, had you gotten to be a little bit of a better drummer, or oh, well, I, was, I had, oh, I, you know, I had switched to guitar by that point. Oh, okay. I, yeah, you know, I'm forgetting stuff. <laughs> I, I'm I'm just skipping over stuff. I had switched to guitar by the time we recorded that. We had John Marlowe playing drums on that. John still plays music in Charlotte. Uh, he's playing tonight. He uh, plays with Jim Croslin. Okay. And uh, he's been playing with um, the Grave Rollers. Yeah. Okay. So he's been doing that. He's never stopped playing. Um, Charles Inman played bass on it. Okay. Do you know Charles? I know the name. He was yeah. a character and a half, man. Mm-hmm. He was wide open. I don't know, interrupt me or anywhere you think I'm, if I'm rambling too much. I well, no, know. I was I was just kind of trying to think. So we were kind of at Mad Brother Ward, and we did kind of – I mentioned that about going out in the audience. So that was a thing that, that was – Happened with Mad Brother. Mad yeah, Brother Mad Ward Brother Ward got, got a lot more aggro. <laughs> you know, I don't know where all this anger came from, but I was pretty angry. I don't know. I could analyze it. I don't know. But I, I kind of came in with a really rotten attitude. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember stuff. The first show we did was opening for Anticene. We only ever opened for Anticene twice. A lot of people thought seemed to think we, that was the only time we ever played. Mm-hmm. Um we didn't play a lot, but that first show we did, there was um, a show previous to that where I got into some heat with these skinhead guys, mm-hmm. and you probably caught the very tail end of that in Charlotte. Yeah, yeah. That, that died that was out. was kind of dying out when, when this, we kind of came in. So. This show kind of ended it, and not because of me. But going it leading into the show it was almost like it was almost like a movie or a wrestling show or something. It had built up over the course of a couple of previous shows with mm. me and a particular guy. And um I remember the, the show previous where I did not play, um they allegedly were outside the milestone. My girlfriend at the time was like, Don't go out front. And I'm like, Wow, she's crying. I'm like, What? And she's like, They're gonna kill you. And apparently somebody either had a knife or a shank and I was going to get stabbed. That was what I was told. No, you know, who knows? Yeah. But it was taken, the threat was taken seriously enough that, and I seen it back their van up against the stage door at the milestone to get me out. And I got a lecture from, I don't remember if it was Tom O'Keefe or Joe Young that night about, brother, you can't be doing that because you, you cause a lot of trouble up here. We'll never get to play shows here. And if we can't have shows here, you know, blah, 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 you know. But uh, did I pay attention to that? No. <laughs> and so, yeah, that first show, I came right off the stage. And I found that guy and I just drilled him. Yeah. And, you know, got in a fight and broke it up. And somewhere... And I'm hoping this picture will turn up. It was in uh, Chris Radock's archives. I mm. imagine he still has it. I mean, somebody has it. Somebody has yeah. it because Radock has obviously passed. It looks like a posed shot, but you know, it was so crowded in there. But you know how people would kind of horseshoe right in front of the stage mm. a little bit yeah. until the open, you know, for the opening bands until the headline band, then they all squish yeah, in. But yeah. you know, I'm standing in that horseshoe. Everyone's kind of looking like. And and I've got myself like I'm walking up to this guy and I'm pointing at my chin like go ahead hit me on the chin give me your best shot mm-hmm. and he's standing there he's got his finger like this down by his waist he's just pointing mm-hmm. and it looks like a posed picture yeah and it's really cool and I, I don't know whatever happened to it and I you know Chris was like well you, you know I'll sell it to you for whatever and I was like I'm not buying it <laughs> so I wish I had now but um I got into like three fights that night I don't remember a lot about it but you know. 
Um, one of it, one of the fights was during an I seen set while they played. Mm-hmm. I walked right on the stage and came. And the, somehow the guy, the guy I got in a fight with, got kicked out, and he got you know snuck back in, and we got into another fight or whatever. And then <laughs> at the end of the set, at the end of an I seen set, they had that guy Cosmic Commander of Wrestling yep. Cosmo come in, and and a lot of people don't know who that is, um, or maybe down here remember Cosmo probably haven't made the correlation that's the promoter fat howard from philadelphia he's in the movie american hardcore okay and he's he was old school guy philly Mm -hmm. and he put all that attitude into a bad guy wrestling manager persona yeah the cosmic commander of wrestling well it was also meant to be funny Mm -hmm. but he zeroed in on these skinheads and they didn't think it was funny at all. Yeah. <laughs> and he knew it. And he just started drilling them all night long. He was the MC for the whole show, right? And he started right from the gate, you know. And finally, at the end, one of those guys came up and just started pounding on his back. Oh, he jumped in the pit at the end of the set. And these kids, that's when they took their cue to like, we got him. Mm. And once they did it, Jeff saw it. Jeff started smashing these guys with his mic stand. Mm-hmm. Like, bam, 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 bam. And the whole thing stops. And Jeff's like, hey, you motherfuckers want to fight. We're here. Let's do it right now. Mm. You know, you think you guys are so fucking bad? You think you're so tough? Prove it now. You know, because then it was like you got the six or eight skinheads on one side. And you got the anti-seen guys. And then the band Cocknoose was there. And then my guy, you know, whatever. Mm. So, you know, they backed down. And that was the end of it. That was, I don't remember skinheads ever really coming out after that. It yeah. was kind of like shut down that night. But it was scary at the time, I can tell you that. Oh, I bet so, yeah. It felt really scary at the time. But, you know, nothing ever happened because people are usually more talk than anything. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, that was kind of the end of all that. And I think a lot of people overlook or forget that, that the that whole skinhead thing, it's always been kind of a phantom menace, but... You know, it was, it, uh, ironically, it was anti-scene that shut it down. Yeah. Not ironically to me, but for I, other people. I wouldn't say, I would say the same, not ironically. Yeah, but, but some people, some people you know, would think so. Yeah. But that was my, you know, and then we got, after the show was over and Penny came and gave us money and she's like, well, there's, you know, you damaged this, you damaged that, this was broke, that is broke, you know. After expenses, <laughs> she goes, here, she gave me five $1 bills. And there was five of us in the band at the time. And I was like, here's your cut, $1, here's your cut, $1, here's your cut. So that was, you know. And and she goes, and you do know not to ever ask to play here again. Okay. So banned for a second time. So banned for the second time. I've been banned for Was that the last time? That was yeah, I've tried for okay. the trifecta and I failed. <laughs> That's right. I, I think I remember hearing that story that you did try to get banned. Again, I have tried. Uh, yeah. I think Ryan was a little more forgiving than the penny was. Well, it wasn't under Ryan that I did. It was under Neil. I oh, smashed okay. the lights yeah. out one night. Um, Neil was more forgiving. Man. N- yeah, I, Neil yeah. was always cool. Neil got it and always was cool. I've, yeah. I've always liked him. Yeah. Um, I think he's always liked me. I, I don't, you know, he's always been cool. But that kind of, you know, that kind of started it. We played sporadically for the next, 
18 months. Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, what your memory of it, of any of that was. The other kind of big thing that got a lot of uh, attention or whatever is we opened for this touring band called the Skate Nicks out oh, of Texas. Yeah. I remember, I think, did, did that show, did the Skate Nicks show up? Or Yeah, they were there. But they didn't play though, right? They did not play. I, I was there that night. I, I was, somebody brought that show up recently on Facebook, and I was trying to remember exactly how that all played out. So Oh, well, we I, <laughs> all right. Well, so they show up, and I didn't know who they were, but before they got there, you know, they have their advanced press material or whatever the stuff they send to the club. And we're looking at it, and they're talking about the skate nigs are the anarchy that Johnny Rotten could only sing about. Mm-hmm. That was the thing that jumped out at us. Well, see, that was where we went, oh, really? Well, this is the thing, too. It's like when they played, I think we came to see you, but I didn't know who they were, but apparently they were supposed to be some kind of big deal. Or yeah. they thought they were. They kind of thought deal. they were. I, You know, I, again, this is whatever so they show up in a bus mm-hmm. and they're pulling a trailer and it's kind of like low rent guar they had all these stage props and stuff now to what degree and how that was used i don't know because i never saw it and um they set up and they spend like hours and hours and hours setting up and sound checking and we're just like twiddling our thumbs like god hurry the fuck up mm-hmm. really you know, we'd already taken the attitude that these were the bad guys because they were the anarchy that Johnny Rotten could only sing about, right? <laughs> they, they self-proclaimed. And, you know, of course, right away, you know, by this point, Chris was with me, and he was just like, Ugh. and I was like, Ugh. so we were like ready to go. And we set up, we're trying to set up on stage, and, you know, the heretic stage was so small, and it was only, you know, it was basically like a, how high was that stage, would you say? Maybe a foot. It, was, it, was it like wasn't about, even that. About like the milestone. If, it if, was if, smaller if that, than that. Yeah. It was, you know, it was pretty low. But, you know, and they absorbed most of it. And I remember the first thing we had a problem with was their equipment being in the way. You know, and we didn't care. We were like, I don't care that they're the headliners. Found that, you know, they had a tour manager. Mm-hmm. And he had made himself known pretty early on because he, he spotted one of our guitars and tried to buy it. We were like, no. He was trying to buy it with the money out of his pocket. Mm-hmm. It's was, it was an old Dan Electra that I had. So I was like, hey, man, uh, can you move some of this stuff? He's like, oh, no, we can't do that. And I'm like, well, look, I'm not trying to be, well, I might even say it that way. I just said, look, I can't guarantee that that's still going to be sitting there. It looks expensive, but, well, you know, that's the kind of band we are. Mm-hmm. And he kind of looked at me, and I'm like, I, I'm not, not going to do it on purpose, but I can't guarantee it. And he moved the stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. He's like, mm-hmm. So that got us off on the wrong foot right there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I don't, rem- you know, that, I don't remember the set. Um, well, I remember one thing about it. I can remember at one point this guy was screaming at me. And you know how the small that stage was. Mm-hmm. But it was almost like, it was almost like there was an invisible barrier that he was not going to breach for whatever reason but he's sitting there going come on motherfucker come on that dare you to spit on me i dare you i guess i was spitting but at that point i had gotten cotton mouth i never wanted to spit on anybody so bad in my life <laughs> as in that moment and he's like come on but i couldn't do it so i was just sitting there going Whoa! Whoa! just egging him on and stuff and i can remember um oh what was the guy that what was the guy that owned that place or ran it at the time uh, dave uh, i don't remember his name um, he was standing at the side of the stage going, just play, just play. It was the first time I'd ever seen him mad. 
you know, we played after we got banned from the milestone. The heretics invited us and said, "Come, what you did there, mm-hmm. come do that here. We yeah. want you to do that." Yeah. So you know, <laughs> so it was a little odd that he was standing on that Dave was standing on the side of the stage going, "Just play," you know. So we got done, and I hopped in a car with Clayton, and we went to go do a radio interview at in Spindale. I mm-hmm. guess was it Spindale where we went. I don't remember now. I know you went must there have one been time. There. I couldn't remember. This would have been that, yeah, you know, this was I, like. That was with Roger. And now I was, me and Matt used to do it with Roger, but then me and Matt got in trouble at the radio station because we did it one night without Roger and we invited this other dude to come in. And that was a, yeah. And we put all this stuff up on the wall and we just left it like just, just, we were photocopying stuff and just putting it up and just thought we were being funny. And then they got mad at us and wanted to talk to us. And we're like, ah, screw it. We're not going back there. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and so yeah. then, then Roger got to inter- like have you and Jeff. and Okay. I couldn't remember who. You know, I just remember I left straight away. Yeah. And then we found out the day after. Well, this brings back Charles Inman. I think Charles Inman was outside. They had gotten on their bus. The mm-hmm. skate nicks had gotten on their bus and were refusing to get off until that's what happened. I got off stage and Dave's like, you have to leave. That's what it was. You have to leave right now. And I'm like, why? What's going on? And he's like, they're on their bus and they will not come off <laughs> until you and everybody associated with this band has left the premises, mm-hmm. gone. So I had to leave anyway. I was like, all right. Well, apparently Charles Inman was there, and if I understand right, was firing a gun in the air <laughs> behind the club where they had parked their bus mm-hmm. and just scaring them. Pow, pow, pow. And we found out afterwards that not only did they not come off their bus, they refused to play. Mm-hmm refused to do you know and so they they had spent six hours setting up that's no exaggeration it was an easy (laughs) six hours setting up and sound checking and didn't play at all you know their crew tore all their shit down Mm -hmm. charles ran one of the guys out of the dressing room at one point or no you know it wasn't a dressing room that stalker they were using it as a dressing room we were back there and the guy was like you gotta leave and charles goes who the fuck are you and he's like i'm with the band (laughs) are you in the band no, but I'm with the band. I didn't ask if you were with the band. I said, are you in the band? And, you know, if you know Charles, he's a scary guy. And the guy started collecting all their stuff, and he kicked them out of the dressing room. <laughs> kicked them out of their own dressing room. So that, that you know, all this stuff was like, you know. And then uh, I was like, well, damn. And, and and I go, I guess I guess Chris must have told me they didn't play. And I, I go, well, I guess Dave's pretty mad. He goes, no. He goes, uh, only five people asked for their money back. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's all right. Yeah. You know? Only five people, so I guess we 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 carried it pretty good. So our attitude back then was probably less than good, and we didn't care, and uh, we felt like now we had a kind of a we had our little place we could play, and we weren't going to get in trouble, and we could kind of you know we were given carte blanche, we could do what we want, and uh, by that time it kind of the idea of doing a second record came up, and. Um, there was a guy we knew who I, you know, again, Jeff made the connection uh, with a guy down in, um, I think he was in Arizona at the time, had a label called Baloney Shrapnel. Mm-hmm. My memory was initially we were going to try to do a double seven inch. Not that we actually had enough material for a double <laughs> seven inch, but that was, you know, that was besides the point. And, um, Kind of the same kind of scenario, only it probably went a lot quicker. I think I had more, a little more time to write the songs, but um, when it came to, you know, we scheduled the date to go record it, and we practiced the day before. Mm-hmm. That was the first time we practiced any of that stuff. 
So, <laughs> you know, we, we, we went in kind of, I don't want to say half-assed. I mean, we were pretty, all things considered, we were fairly well-focused. Tom, at that point, had gotten real aloof. Mm-hmm. And some of the stuff he was doing got to be real difficult. Um, so we we ran the basic tracks that day and decided we were going to come back and finish it out. You know, my memory of this is dim because this is summer of 93. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can tell you what happened that day. I can tell you, in fact, I know exactly when it was. It was June 28th, 1993, because we were sitting in the studio, and Jeff gets a phone call. He disappears, and he comes back, and he calls us all into the control room, and we sit down, and he goes, man, uh, I just found out Gigi Allen died. Oh, yeah. And we were like, whoa. And I had been working on this song called Bloodlust Death Wish, mm-hmm. and I changed all the lyrics. I remember sitting outside... And changing the words to make it like a tribute song about Gigi. And, you know, I got to meet Gigi when he came through town. A lot of people don't know. He came through town a bunch, mm-hmm. not playing shows. He yeah. would just come and stay. Yeah, Jeff was telling me about that. And so I got to hang out with him a bunch of times. And, um, you know, that was kind of a cool thing to, to be able to do. And he seemed to like me. You know, I can't sit there and go, oh, yeah, GGL was my pal. It wasn't like that at all. Yeah. But he knew who I was and was cool with me. Um, I can remember one time, and uh, actually, I, I posted about this a, a while ago on Facebook, and Jeff Young, I was glad Jeff Young remembered it. He was like, I remember that. He was riding with Jeff Young in his car, but I didn't know who it was. I was riding riding down Central Avenue. It was summertime, you know, and my window's down. And this car rolls up next to me, and the guy in the passenger seat leans out all the way out to his waist. And it's like this old man, this toothless old man going, Mad brother, what, you cocksucker motherfucker? <laughs> and, it, you know, I was like, what the fuck? And I, it was Gigi, and I didn't even know he was in town. <laughs> but he was riding with Jeff Young, and it was funny. But um, I, got, I can tell you another Gigi story if you want to hear it. Sure. We went to Atlanta to go see him play on Valentine's Day 92. This is my first chance to see him live. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he played at this place called The Rec Room. And we get there, and we get to go backstage. And backstage, you had to go down a hall and upstairs into like this loft. And that was their backstage there. And it was, it was, it was like, you know, and this was back when I was still doing Failure with Brad. This was right after we had gotten banned from the Milestone. Mm-hmm. And... Me and Brad were like, we thought we were pretty, pretty bad dudes for Charlotte at the time, even though we weren't. But we, you know, when you're young, you think, uh, you know, yeah, we're the shit, right? <laughs> and then we get thrown into the real shit, and it's like, oh fuck, you know. So we just sat there on the on a against the wall, like keeping our mouths shut and staying out of the way. And there's these girls that had their like their. These junkie girls had their works on a table mm-hmm. and all this stuff. It was the first time you ever seen any of that for us. You know, oh, yeah, we were yeah. like not, you know, we we're just like, what the fuck's going on? But we don't say anything. And uh, then I don't remember who came over to us. It was, it was somebody came and said, no, this is what you're going to do. When we go downstairs, they're going to take the stage and you guys are going to stand here and don't go anywhere. <laughs> so we had to stand kind of like on the side of the stage, like, off the stage uh, 
behind the like where the guitar player was. Mm-hmm. The guitar player was a guy named Bill. So that's where we, you know, out of the way. And uh he didn't he didn't shit on stage that night or nothing. He'd gotten beat up the night before by cops up in Dalton, Georgia and had a black eye. And their drummer was still in jail, Dino. So they had a guy filling in. In fact, there for a minute when when I got to Jeff's that afternoon, he was like, "You play drums? You you might you think you could play drums tonight?" <laughs> and I was like, "Get killed? No way! There's yeah. no way I could play it." You know, but I, I, didn't, well, I didn't say that. I was like, uh, "Okay," but thank God that didn't happen. Because <laughs> if that had happened, I probably wouldn't be sitting here now. Everyone would have been like, "I would have," you know. But um, he got this really great drummer down there to sit in and. It was an awesome show. I mean, they were just a great band. The Murder Junkies at that mm-hmm. point was just a really good band. Mm-hmm. For the first time, Gigi had a really good band behind them. You know, and I can remember watching him do his thing and just thinking, man, this is like, you know, this is what it should all be about, right? It was just exciting and, and scary mm-hmm. and intense. And, and then after the words, we go back up to the dressing room. And me and Brad take our spot. Keep her mouth shut, you know. And I always joke like we were probably sitting there going, "Yeah, we're cool, right?" Thinking we're like, you know. But the truth was, we we're probably like going, you know. <laughs> but somebody came in and brought this big stack of pizzas and sits them down next to us, and it smelled so good. And we were like hungry at this point. And we were just like, "Oh man!" It's like we weren't going to just help ourselves to their pizza or whatever. And then there's all these other people that flooded backstage, and we're you know trying to get their moment to you know talk yeah, to Gigi yeah. or whatever so we're just staying out of the way and next thing i know Gigi comes over to me and brad and he goes you guys better eat some of this because i can't sure eat it all <laughs> and they were like, okay you know and help ourselves <laughs> at pizza and he just squats down next to us and starts talking to us yeah he's like you know yeah jeff told me about your band and i heard you got in a lot of trouble that's fucking great you know and all this <laughs> he's like don't ever let the motherfucker shut you down you know and I remember he goes, do what you do. He goes, he goes, do what you do. Don't do what I do. Yeah. Do what you do, but do it hard. Mm-hmm. That New England accent, hard. Do it hard. <laughs> I remember that. And I was like, man, you know, I'm getting a fucking pep talk from yeah. Gigi Allen. How, you know, this is a cool thing. And I, you know, I never forgot it. And I just remember, but I remember that don't do what I do, do what you do. Mm-hmm. The point, and I got it then, and I realized, that's when it clicked in my head, the whole Gigi Allen thing wasn't about how he did what he did. It was more the idea of why. Yeah. There was a psychology to it, and a lot of people miss that, you know, which is taking everything at your disposable as as a means of attack, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, for better or worse. Yeah. And you don't have to do that. You don't have to shit on stage as your means of attack. You can find another method. Exactly. Yeah. You know, but it was all about the subversion and that that attack against just just kind of you know stagnant mainstream conventional idea, mm-hmm. and that's why I probably you know that's a big part of me being kind of the way I was it was or at least the way I felt I was. Um, and that's why I still kind of like kind of look at people sideways when they you know man Rancid's badass and i'm like come on dude i mean they're okay but you know there's so much better shit out there yeah, man yeah. you know it's just like why do you why do you just stop there there's people that are like hey man you want to jam and i'm like well what do you like to listen to uh, you know and i'm like I, it's, I man i don't i don't want your weak sauce yeah weakening my strong <laughs> sauce man <laughs> That's how I feel about it. It might be obnoxious, but I don't, it's how just like, you know, there's people I'm like, I don't know. I don't, 
thank you, but no. Yeah. And um, but that got, that informed my attitude and opinion. You know, and then you know, hence that skate Nick show. It was mm. just you know, doing what I was doing. Um, and then we made that record, and I felt compelled to change the words to make it about Gigi because it was a big influence in that time. I'm not as fond of that second record. I like the first one better too. Um, I think there are good ideas on the second record, but it's poorly executed. Uh, mm. Kicker could have been a great song. It's not. Bloodless Death Wish is okay. Kill the Scene's the best song on the record. Mm. Need It Bad's pretty good, but it's played too fast. We played everything way too fast. Yeah. We should never have recorded the plasmatic song, Butcher Baby. Yeah. That was a bad idea. <laughs> but I was also... That was a big influence, too, at the time. I was very heavy into the plasmatics, and the original idea, when I first thought of the idea of Mad Brother Ward, was kind of doing like a shock rock thing, which I'm kind of glad I didn't try to do, mm-hmm. because the Mad or Marilyn Manson thing came up right around the same time, and everyone would have probably just thought, oh, he's just trying to do that. Yeah. But the truth was, I had not been hip to any Marilyn Manson when I came up with the idea and was going to do more of a plasmatics thing. But I couldn't figure it out. I was like, that's going to cost money and take a lot of time and I didn't have that. So mm-hmm. instead I just kind of went into the wrestling thing. So that was those records and I was surprised that they got the reviews they did. They got a lot of mileage and a lot of traction and I wasn't anticipating that at all. Maximum Rock and Roll gave them both really big, great reviews. Yeah. Uh, got on the top ten lists of a bunch of the editors there, Tim Yohannan in particular. I was on Tim Yohannan and Jeff Bale's top ten list oh, with wow. one of these, and I'm like, that that was unusual yeah. because they had different kind of, mm. you know, Tim Yohannan generally liked the more political, social-minded, you know, and Jeff Bale liked the more rocking street mm-hmm. punk, yeah. you know, whatever, yeah. you know. So you didn't usually see the correlation there but i got i got i got on both of theirs and you know the worst thing i did was not tour mm-hmm. and if we had toured and tried to push it who knows we could have probably got a lot more traction out of it but yeah. we were just so ambivalent towards that stuff and full circle uh eventually towards the end brad came back around and played a couple of shows with me we did a open mic night at jeremiah's one night Mm -hmm. we snuck in (laughs) you know and they had the rule like you couldn't be an established band well we're not an established band no one knows who we are yeah you know that's (laughs) not what they meant they didn't you couldn't be in a you know it was like they were trying to throw different people together to come up with new ideas and all this and uh we took the stage and we hit like three songs and i remember the first song like everybody in the room there's like 60 people there and it was like the leftover metalhead crowd you know mm-hmm. this was in the the death of hair metal mm-hmm. you know and they were kind of the leftover dregs of that yeah and they just were like what the fuck <laughs> you know they all physically stepped back a foot you know <laughs> and we played three songs boom 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 
Brad had painted his face up like Ace Fraley. I don't even remember how he did that, but he did. And uh, we just walked, you know, because we didn't, it was open mic. They, they provided the back line and the guitar zone. So all we had to do was play on the stuff they had. We played. We didn't tear anything up. We just played the songs, put down the equipment, and walked right out the front door. Yeah. <laughs> and as we were walking out, I could hear a barmaid going, now that was good. I like that. <laughs> like, all the rest of this stuff sucks, but those guys, you know. And uh, that, then that was, again, it goes back to the thing I had with Brad. Had we maintained that, mm-hmm. you know, where it wasn't like trying to get physically violent with anybody or anything, just a good tight band playing sharp good punk rock so this, you know, this was like after mad brother this Wars is the, the last mad brother Wars stuff we played one show at heretics after that and then it was over okay and everybody just sort of went their own you know their own ways there was no formal okay we're breaking up it just stopped yeah then i went to uh Got married, had kids, yeah, I was bought say, a house. Yeah, Brother Ward and the Screaming Street Trash, that was probably when you took your break. Because yeah. I think um, the, I was still in the scene for a little while after that. And I think that when the Dividers came around, I was, I think that was during the time that I was out of it. Right. Like when I was being the well, dad. There were a couple of moments. Um, I got on stage. That I met those guys from the Style Kings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they were big fans. Yeah. And they could play all those songs. And they were really excited. I came down to their where they were practicing and they sat in they played all the songs and then we were like okay well they they did a they did a show at the milestone one night and i was there mm-hmm. and their guitar player quit on stage and they kind of sat there and looked at each other and it was for, for nothing you yeah, know yeah i don't even remember what made them mad they had it was it was Dwayne. Dwayne, yeah. Played. And then Russell. Yeah. I forget the drummer's name. My, my brother played drums for him for a while. I don't know if he was playing with him at that time. Andrew? I don't remember his name. Yeah, I, I want to say his name was Mike. Yeah, I was going to say, he may not have been playing with him at that time. We called him Dirty I, Mike. I, That's yeah, what I, I remember. Think, I think they played for a little while after my brother left. So they had this guy, and then the guy, Gail. Gail, yeah. He was the one that quit. And he quit. Yeah. And they're all looking at each other like, what are we going to do? And I was like, I, walked, I just jumped up, and I leaned over to one of them and said, do y'all want to do these Mad Brother Ward songs? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> and we, I forget, we did one or two. Yeah. I don't remember. And uh, actually, that might have been the night I smashed. I think I did it more than once. I smashed the lights out that night mm-hmm. with a chair. You know, you can't find a partner, use a wooden chair. <laughs> and I found a wooden chair. And uh, yeah, and it was cool. And I think we p- tried to, uh, we played a set of Mad Brother Ward songs one night that I barely remember. With those guys as well, yeah, yeah. But that you know that was that would have been around ninety six, I think maybe. Mm-hmm. So you know, and we me and me and Dwayne and Russell jammed a couple of times and like we were going to do something, but nothing happened. And it was it was just probably my fault. You know? I, saying, I know those guys had a fallen out at some point too. So that, they, 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 yeah. I didn't. I wasn't aware of that. I, I've lost track of both of them. I liked both of them. You know, I. I uh, but you know, time. And other things, I, they, they came over the where I was living at the time and hung out a few times, and mm-hmm. you know, we 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 got along really good, but uh, just lost track of them. Um, I listened to Dwayne's yeah thing with episode, you. Yeah, looks like he's still busy doing stuff. Yeah, so that's he's still cool. playing, doing stuff. 
Definitely. And Russell's living up in Pittsburgh or around Pittsburgh right now. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, that. he moved um, up there. I don't. I don't think he's playing music these days. Or, I was just in Pittsburgh. I was in Pittsburgh Wednesday. Yeah. Wednesday morning. Um. But you know, and then uh, a couple of years after that, this band out of Statesville called the Beatdowns. Mm-hmm. Those guys were big fans, and I got on stage with them, and would you know they played hated. Okay. Yeah. You know, so I was just getting on stage sporadically with people. I wrote a song with Brad, and I don't remember the year this was. This would have been early 2000s. Hung, hung out with Brad. He was in a band called Crime Scene 13. Mm-hmm. I remember them. They were practicing. I'd go, I went out to a practice room one day with just him, and um, we recorded on a four-track one day. He's like, well, you want to... You want to record something? I was like, uh, yeah, what do you want to do? He's like, oh, no, let's write something. And so he started, I was like, well, what do you got? And I played the drums while he played riffs. And I was like, well, take that riff and we'll put it with that riff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then I was like, okay, now what are we going to do? We've got to write words. And I was like, he goes, uh, I go, what, what are you thinking? He goes, anthem. And the first thing that came to my head was all the kids are doing it. And so I wrote it down. And to me, this is the best song I ever wrote mm-hmm. with Brad. I love that song. Yeah. And we recorded it on four track just for fucking shits and giggles, our our thing. Then shortly thereafter, Ryan McGinnis and Chris Piegler were doing their Suicide Watch thing. They were going to do a comp. And he and he asked me, do you got any leftover Mad Brother Ward stuff? And I'm like, well, no, not really. But I got, I got this song I just did on a four track, if you want to use that. So then I had to contact Brad and go, are you cool with this being a Mad Brother Ward thing? And he was like, well... You know, and I was like, I wasn't anticipating him. I thought he'd go, yeah, sure, no problem. He kind of went, well, and he and he had had the idea of doing a band, and he said we should call it something. Yeah. And he goes, I always like the name Drat. Yeah. Just like I just like that word Drat. That's right. I was I forgot all about Drat. <laughs> and I was like, well then, okay. So I started the band Drat with Brad, but it wasn't, it was just going to be that, yeah. you know. And it wasn't a throwaway. We liked the song. The recording wasn't great. My vocal on it isn't good. I played drums on it, and I'm not a good drummer. But it's, you know, raw and loose. And sure enough, review comes out, Maximum Rock and Roll, what's the best song on the album? <laughs> you know, and I got, that's when I realized how competitive things were. I got a lot of negative play off of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was like, well, sorry you know (laughs) but uh somewhere in that period uh i was talking to mel hoffman who was managing tremont at the time Mm -hmm. you know penny owned it and mel was kind of the manager quote unquote Mm -hmm. yeah and she's like yeah we're doing a misfits tribute night and i was like oh that sounds like it might be cool who who i was playing you know blah 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 she's like yeah but i'm you know they're all fighting about who's going to play where what slot you know and she's like, 
the band that I was going to have open the thing just said they weren't going to do it. They just dropped out. And now I don't know who to put. Mm-hmm. And I went, I know who you could do. <laughs> called Brad. I was like, Brad, you want to do Drat as a two-piece and then just play some Misfit covers and open this show? And that grew into, well, what if we got Andy Cobble, mm-hmm. who was in, back in the 80s, was in a hardcore band called Catacomb. Yeah. And um, John Marlowe had been the drummer in Catacomb. So then it was like, well, if we can get Andy, maybe we can get John. Mm-hmm. You know, and then I won't play drums. I'll play bass. So next thing we knew, we had this little combo to play mm-hmm. Misfit covers. Mm-hmm. So that was the start of what became Drat. They it, it went over so well that they saw that there was some potential to carry it on. But I was like, I don't want to commit to it, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I so I bowed out after that. But yeah. we played that night. I think, you know, been told, and I agree, I think we kind of, killed it that night yeah. and everything that came after was just kind of like i remember uh, nate wilkinson was playing with somebody to do something i don't mm-hmm. remember but he came up going if i know you guys are going to play you know <laughs> i love nate he's a great guy yeah um so i was dabbling in stuff yeah just not really doing anything serious for a little while and then i met joe dead he's somebody you need to have on the show mm-hmm. so this guy joe moves to charlotte He's looking for a band to play with. He's from Houston, and he played in a band called Humongous. Mm. And Humongous was, lead singer from, from Humongous was Nikki Sicky from Verbal Abuse. And Joe was deeply entrenched in that Houston punk hardcore thing, was part of that migration that went from Houston to San Francisco, and all those guys lived in a place called the Vats. Mm-hmm. And then he fell in with the guys out there with, from uh, the band uh, Bad Posture, did the song goddamn motherfucking son of a bitch yeah yeah and um started a band while he was out there called any three initials with will shatter from flipper okay that was his last band yeah and joe was the guitar player and then in houston he had done humongous and they had long story but they met cheetah chrome and recorded Mm -hmm. dead boys covers with cheetah chrome which came out on a seven inch that's how i knew who he was because i'd I didn't have that record, but I remember reading about it in Maximum Rock and Roll. They did a big interview, and I yeah. remember that. So I was like, I know who that guy is. And he called me, um, and we started talking, and then it was like, well, let's see what we can do. And that's how the Divider sort of got started. Mm-hmm. We Initially, we played with um, Chris Hunter from Hairball, the drummer from Hairball. Do you remember Hairball? Name sounds familiar, but they didn't play a whole lot. Yeah, don't, it doesn't stick out. Um, great drummer. He's he's moved away. He's living out in Oregon now. Jose Wright, who had been in crime scene with Brad, mm. and he played bass for one or two things. And then we started slowly putting a band together. So and, was it uh, still was it was it Mad Brother Ward and the it Dividers? It was Mad Brother Ward yeah. and the Dividers. wasn't going to be Mad Brother Ward originally, but everyone felt like that was an established name that we should use it. Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't to me. It wasn't really the same thing. I was like, well, let's write new songs and do this from the ground up. And yeah. they were like, yeah, but you got the two records, and you know, we got this. And I'm like, yeah, but it's not. Yeah, you know, this was a much more kind of you know going to you know learning from what i you know that last few shows i did with mad brother ward and the screaming street trash with brad knowing that we could do a powerful band that would still have a strong impact and i wouldn't have to jump off the stage or whatever get into a fight every night (laughs) and 
you know, I, I, it 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 was real short though. It didn't it didn't it didn't really last long. We we most of it occurred during two thousand three to two thousand five. Mm-hmm. But um, we played one or two shows after. You know, we the, the biggest problem we did with the the dividers was never record it. Um, but it was harder to do because Joe had his job, which was a professional job. He was a chef. Mm. You know, he was on TV and stuff here. A lot of the chefs knew he was. Yeah. And he was running academics for a culinary school, which is what he still does. He's moved to Myrtle Beach. Dave was a sales manager for a company. And so, you know, their schedules, Dave Weinkoop, who was the bass player in Fireball XL5, played bass for me now at this point. So it was like, it was, and then we had the two kids. Uh, a guy named James on drums and a guy named Andy Krause on guitar. Mm-hmm. And Andy's kind of become my little brother. He's AMF Films. He yeah. currently plays in AMF yeah. Films. Yeah. But he's, he's, in my opinion, the best purebred rock and roll guitar player in Charlotte. No metal in him, which was very important to me. But um, I didn't know it at the time. And we brought him in and initially as a bass player and then realized he could play guitar and was like, oh, no, you're going to play guitar. And I'll get Dave to play bass. <laughs> so we had a really good band, and I remember we played it. Um, we played on a Wednesday night or something. We weren't even torn down. We finished the set, and we're turning around to tear the stuff down. And the guy comes up and goes, "Hey, Mel wants to see you in the office." And I was like, "Oh, okay." We'll walk back there, and she's like, "Look, don't tell anybody, but..." Um, the casualties are coming and we want you to open hmm. and she knew it was a coveted slot for these kids to yeah. all want to open you know i didn't give a sh- i mean I, I appreciated the opportunity i, I understood that yeah. it was important but i wasn't going to sit there and go oh damn you know if i didn't yeah, you know, on the show i wasn't like that but everyone else was and yeah. she that was part of the prior rationale she knew that it wasn't going to be like something for me to go you know mm. so when we got to open that that really kind of put us in a different spot and we kind of hopscotched up real fast mm-hmm. as far as our, what, what do you want to call it? Prominence Recall or whatever. Or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Because then, uh, after that we were headlining, mm-hmm. you know, and we were headlining on weeknights and drawing a hundred kids. Yeah. Which was kind of a big deal back then. Oh yeah. It'd be and, a really big deal these days. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, we it was a good band. We just it was hard to keep it together, mm-hmm. and we had some bad shows. We, I mean, we had some good shows, but we also had some bad shows. And I get real discouraged by the bad shows, that, you know, because I knew what we were capable of doing, and, yeah, if, and yeah. if we didn't deliver at this consistent level every single time, I'm like, why even do it? Mm-hmm. And I kind of had it in my head at that point. I was like, I'm going to do this about five more years. I, I want, you know, I was in my early 30s. I was like, I'm not going to do this at 40. <laughs> and we ended up playing a show, a couple of shows at the end of, it was 2009, 2010. In 2010, it was, I think it was August of 2010, we played a show at Tremont. And we got about three songs in, and I just, I was, I, I was like, it was just so bad. It was just bad on every conceivable way. And I just thought, you know, this is it. I'm done. Yeah. And I cut the set short, and everyone's looking at me like, what? You know? And, uh, Tore down. I was like, "That's I'm I'm retired." (laughs) (laughs) 
So, and then at the same time, I was traveling around at that point again with Anticine doing like uh, merch and yeah. Rodian or whatever. And kind of thought that was going to be where I'd go. Just, you know, I did that. And actually, I, I, I had it in my head. I was like, you know what? If I'm going to, I always had it in my head, I'd be dumb. I was, by the time I was 40, I was like, well. So that following October, I stopped traveling with them. Mm-hmm. You know, as their merch guy, I told Jeff, I was like, I think I'm done. You know, I kind of figured, put that all behind me. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of where I was for the next four years. Yeah. I travel occasionally with Anticine just for fun, but not working or any in any kind of capacity. I was just traveling, just, yeah, yeah. you know. And then, you know, Joe Young died. And um, I think I think a lot of people thought that was probably going to be the end. Of yeah, Anticine. you know. I, because Jeff could, could have done something different. He, he could, could have he, easily done something different. He's, he's had other projects. Yeah, I um, well, I had done the Mongols with him. I guess I need to. Mm-hmm. I, I jumped over that. Okay. Yeah. Don't think about it. Don't talk about it. We did the Mongols. That was in 2008, I think. They had done an anniversary show, and their rhythm section was cycling out. You know, and they generally rotate through guys about every five years. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I can't remember quite the details. Jeff kind of felt that uh, at the time, maybe Joe was feeling a little unmotivated. You know, to get new guys or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the story is there. I, I might have that wrong. I, I don't, I'm, but I was like, well. Why you got this down period and you're looking for new guys? Why don't you do another solo record? Because he had done Jeff Clayton and the Slime Goats in the 80s. Mm-hmm. It was a killer fucking record. Yeah. I was like, why don't you get some guys so like maybe you could play lead and stuff and you can kind of do something that's, you know, next level anti-scene stuff. Because he likes, he doesn't like getting out of that anti-scene thing. I mean, you know, he's mm-hmm. committed to it, which oh, yeah. is yeah. pretty fucking cool. There's not a lot of people that do that. Yeah, You look at bands and, you know, their history is... You know, they're this kind of music on one record, and maybe by three records later, you know, they start they, off as a hardcore band, and now they're yeah. a stoner rock band, or now they're a surf rock band, or now they're a rockabilly, mm-hmm. you know. Anticine never did that, and he's always been dedicated to the Anticine thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was like, well, this give you an opportunity to kind of, you know, elbow out of that a little bit and do something different. And he was like, yeah, I don't know. You think he would care? I was like, of course they would. It'd be cool. It'd be like the Slime Goats. Do another Slime Goats record. Yeah. And um, he goes, well, if you can find some people to do it. And so I started, my first thought was Andy on guitar. Mm-hmm. Well, Andy said no. I couldn't understand. Why would you Why would you say no? And he didn't want to do it for whatever reason. Uh, talked to Jimmy King, who was our, the bass player in the Misguided Youth, first punk band I ever saw. And he yeah. ended up he, owning the Penguin in its heyday back mm-hmm. in the 2000s. Played in uh, the Aqua, Aqua Lads, yeah. and he played in uh, Drat. Mm-hmm. He was the bass player for Drat. And then, um, he goes, well, I know a drummer. And I was like, okay. There's this guy named Jerry McHolcomb who played in this band called The Talk. And I was like, well, let's, well, you got to find a guitar player or whatever. 
Next thing I know, he goes, well, I talked to Mike Hendricks. He said he'd do it. Mike Hendricks had been yeah. in Belmont Playboys. And I was like, wow, that would be kind of big, Jeff yeah. and Mike together. <laughs> that would be cool. So I told Jeff, I was like, well, this is what's going on. You know, I got blah, blah, blah. And he goes, okay, well, you can play rhythm guitar. And I'm like, what? Whoa, whoa, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just trying to help you find guys, man. And he's yeah. like, no, I think, he goes, man, you, you, you could do this. And I think what he was probably thinking, and I've never talked about this with him, so I don't know, but I think he thought if he had me in the band, it would keep it rooted in a place that he wanted to st- always mm-hmm. stay rooted in. Yeah. Which is lo-fi punk rock. Mm-hmm. They couldn't go to, you know, I would be the anchor musically. Yeah. <laughs> and I was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was cool to be able to play with those guys. And, you know, I came up, you know, initially we were just going to do some shows. And, and then I was like, well, we got to record this stuff. Mm-hmm. But I started thinking, well, what are we going to record? And I, I had the idea. I was like, we should re-record the old Anticene song, War Hero. But I had this idea in my head. And... I couldn't play it, but I could hum it, and I could, you know, explain it to Mike. I'm like, it needs to be like this, and he just knew exactly where I was at with it. I just kind of da da da, you know, hummed it, and he started picking it out the way I, you know, and I was like, "Ah, there it is. Yeah. (laughs) And and you know, we recorded that, and it turned out great, and I felt really proud that it was my arrangement. You know, I got to take one of my favorite band songs, a favorite old song, and do something different with it that was still I thought cool. Now, I couldn't have done it, obviously, on my own, because I had no means of doing it, but, you know, I could explain it to Mike, and he could do it. Saigon, Vietnam, smoke is cleared and the seas are calm. Carolina, things will be fine. Patching up my wounds and tending to my shadow. recorded a Mad Brother Ward song called Need It Bad and that was a big thrill for me yeah um, so that record turned out really good I thought it was really strong and we played some shows um, and around that same time you know we were playing anti-scene songs in the set mm. with the mongrels and then around that same time there was a little punk festival thing up in Hickory and we skimmed on that me Jeff Williams uh, a guy named Jason Griscom on drums mm-hmm. and Gideon Smith singing. Yeah. And we did a all anti-scene set and we didn't, we did oh, it wow. unannounced. We, we asked the guys if we could do it as a surprise 
you know, it was in honor of Anastine's anniversary. It was all around the same time. I, I think it was the 25th. And I was like, well, they got to, wait a minute. We're doing this as a, as a surprise. Somehow they got to know we're going to do it because otherwise they won't ever know. Mm-hmm. So we finally leaked to them. I'm like, hey, we're doing this. And Joe and Jeff came and watched us do it. Yeah. So I think coupled with having seen that and the shows I did with the mongrels, I think that's when Joe started saying, you know, if anything ever happened to me, you could just get Russ to do it, you know, which kind of was funny until it wasn't. Mm, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think that's probably where those wheels started turning in their heads. They could see that, you know, I could do it. You know, so when Joe died, I, you know, that morning, it kind of hit me in the back of the head. I was like, you know, Jeff's pretty stubborn. Mm. If he asks you to do this, what are you going to do? So I was just like, oh, man. And that's a horrible thing to think of mm-hmm. hours after the guy has passed away. But I just, you know. Well, I understand. Yeah, uh, I understand was, a lot of emotions were going through me. But I can remember I was I was going to go pick a friend of mine up. And that's when it hit me. I was like, oh, no. What if Joe decides he wants to keep doing this and asks you to do it? Because Joe had been saying that. So. Joe had said it. I've only known. I can only remember two times Joe saying that that I was aware of. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was like, well, that's something to think about. Because in my mind, having grown up with it here, you don't replace Joe Young. Yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, on a grander scale, and we were all aware, even Joe, that, you know, for all intents and purposes, and I seen it is Jeff Clayton. Because mm-hmm. there's been so much turnover and so much, you know, I mean, they made a Jeff Clayton bobblehead, for God's sake. Yeah, yeah. They just came out with a Jeff Clayton action figure. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was stuff to think about. And then about a week, 10 days later, I, Jeff calls me and he goes, I want you to meet me up at uh, the house. I want to talk to you. And that's when I knew for sure. What, I was like, I know what this is. Yeah. And it was super fucking heavy for me. Because even though I kind of knew it was coming... You know, he sat down. He goes, "Me." And he goes, "Jeff Young," because I think Jeff's initial idea was the band was over. Yeah. And then Jeff Young was like, "No, you can't let this stop." Joe Young's brother. They mm-hmm. were super tight. Jeff oh, Young yeah. and Joe Young were yeah. really close. So Jeff Young is telling Jeff Clayton, "Joe wouldn't want you to stop. I don't want you to stop. You've got to keep doing mm-hmm. this. You need to get Russ." You know. So, him and Barry and Jeff Young, I guess had had that conversation and then had me come up and, um, you know, you can imagine it was, I, I won't, I won't lie. I got very emotional about oh, yeah. it. Um, and even though, like I said, I knew it was coming. Um, I'm getting kind of emotional thinking about it now. I mean, it was hard, you know, mm-hmm. cause I'd looked up to Joe, Joe so much and I, but I knew it was something that Jeff needed in his life to do. Mm-hmm. Not that he couldn't do other things, but you know, that it speaks to his vision of what this band has always been, mm-hmm. you know, and his dedication to it, his commitment to it. I'm still amazed that, you know, we're going close to 40 years. The band is not oh, me yeah. personally, yeah. but you know, the band is exist and he still, he still has that passion for it, yeah. you know? And, uh, there are times where we're on stage and I'm just looking at him thinking, geez, how did, where does it come from? <laughs> you know, I'm like dying up there. Like, <gasps> <laughs> and he's still got the energy and the gusto and he, you know, and I'm just like, you know, it just blows my mind. And um, 
I get the feeling he he lives for it. He really does. He really, really does. And I mean, it's understandable because, I mean, at this point, 40 years, it's basically his whole life. Mm -hmm. This is his life's work. You know, that's not to say you know there's stuff that they've made mistakes along the way or whatever, missteps, wrong turns, or what What, what band doesn't? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, but the fact that they've stayed committed to their singular vision the mm-hmm. whole time, they like I said, they've never gone off into some other route trying to chase a trend to stay, quote unquote, relevant or whatever. Exactly, yeah. You know, that's yeah. never been his concern. And it kind of goes back to that same thing that like what Gigi told me the time, do what you do. Yeah. Do what you do. Don't do what anyone else does. Don't do what I do. You do you. Mm-hmm. You know, seeing that in practice all my life from these guys kind of gets clear as to how to do things or, or why, you know, the, what I think is the correct way to do things. I think it's hard to explain to like some people on the outside, like how important anti scene is and how, like, like you say, the, the vision and the fact that, that Jeff has stayed true to what anti-scene started as and what they are today. It's just uh, from people on the outside, they see it and they see certain things and it, and it makes them think certain things about the band. Well, yeah, but it's, it, I've, but, I've told the story at Joe's memorial service. I can remember being up outside of um, a club in Hickory and he was talking to these kids. Joe was talking to these kids that were in the opening band outside the club and they were talking about guitars and Joe was telling him, you know, you know, just, you know, what do you play? What do you, you know, mm-hmm. well, you know, somewhere I clued in and Joe hadn't that these kids didn't realize that Joe was the guitar player in NIC. Mm-hmm. They thought he was just a random schlep at the show talking guitars out front. And there, and he's talking about, you know, just guitar gear stuff. And he wasn't a big guitar nerd or nothing. You know, he was just, just a casual conversation with these kids who he just met. Mm-hmm. And I picked up, almost a split second probably before he did, they didn't know who he was. And they go, well, what band are you in? Or what's the name of your band? And he goes, oh, I'm, I'm the guitar player for Anticene. And you could see it on their face. Mm-hmm. This guy who was this, just a sweetheart of a guy talking guitar stuff. Yeah. And like, you know, they, you could tell. It's like, I, I thought these guys were, you know, KKK baby killing, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and this guy's a nice guy. And it's, you know, it's like, that perception is is so uh, such a wrong perception. Exactly, and and the fact that you know we grew up here and we we I was ten years late to the game because when we when we found anti scene it was right around the time of the ten year anniversary show, uh, but they were genuine when I met them, and to this day Jeff, Jeff is still super genuine and just a, a great guy. Yeah, the. Um and I think uh, in a lot of ways they're misunderstood. I understand why. Oh yeah, but you know. But I think, um, you know, I look at uh, – I, I, anytime someone starts talking, I'm like, look at who the – Chris Piegler came to me with this one time, mm-hmm. and I got really mad at him about it. I was like, Chris, you've known Jeff longer than I have. I'm like, look who their friends are. You know, look look at, you know, who they associated with, who they let into their homes. You know, the whole, you know him on a personal level, mm-hmm. you know. I'm, and then I'm like, dude, what, and to anyone else, I'm like, wait a minute. Jello Biafra gets it. He's a yeah. big Anticene fan. Yeah. He counts Jeff as a friend. Mm-hmm. What does he get that you don't? Yeah. You know, it's like, eh, but whatever. But like I said, I get it. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people mistake some of the satire mm-hmm. as, you know, I wrote once sometime once about, you know, uh, the things they take serious, they shouldn't. And the things they don't take serious, they should. Yeah, exactly. With this yeah. man. But, uh, 
you know, and I think also another thing that people in Charlotte tend to not recognize is just how uh, how they're revered in other places. Mm-hmm. And I said that before I ever joined the band, just having toured around the United States with them. But it really didn't hit me until I got to go to Europe. And that that was very eye-opening, you know, to see how much more readily embraced and how big the following is. Because they're probably way more popular overseas and, and, and other places than they really are in the South. And, and some people would think, oh, they're just a redneck band. Yeah, no, you go. I mean, and then we went to Tokyo. <laughs> yeah. And people flew. I mean, people flew in from Korea. Mm-hmm. Because that was the closest thing I seen it ever come to their part of the world, you know. And you see that, like, and when they do their inter- or their anniversaries, and you see people flying in from Europe to here mm-hmm. and stuff. And I'm like, man, that's that's a pretty strong testimony, yeah. you know. Oh yeah. To 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 what the whole thing is, um, you know. And it's something you don't. And I know he doesn't take for granted. It's just it's 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 very humbling, and it's kind of like, how do you respond to it? Mm-hmm. You know, and the only way you can respond is to continue to do, uh, try to do better than what you did the day before yeah. with, with your music and everything, you know, and that's kind of my attitude. Like now I'm coming into a position, I'm the only the second guitar player they ever had. They've had a lot of different bass players, a lot of different drummers, but Joe Young was the sound of the band. Oh, yeah. You know, Jeff's the voice, but the guitar was the sound. Mm-hmm. I can't just change that. That's an awkward spot to be in because you want to put your own stamp on it. So you have to figure out your spot. And I also had to rationalize in my head and reconcile. There's a very high probability that I could come into this thing and be completely rejected. Mm. The fan base might go, no. But they haven't. They've, I mean, I haven't seen any evidence of it. I've been very humbled by that, that yeah. I've been so you know, readily accepted. And, uh, you know, and I get a lot of, uh, this is kind of bothers me when people come up sometimes, like the very first show I played was at the Muddy Roots Festival in Tennessee. Mm. And I had on one side of the stage, the weirdos, right? Yeah. The fucking weirdos are watching <laughs> us. And on the other side of the stage who made a very important, like the guy even put it on his Facebook page, but on the other side of the stage, mud honey. Oh, wow. And Mud Honey had yeah. two demands from, from Muddy Roots. They wanted a particular kind of barbecue out of Nashville, and they wanted to know, and I seen set, set time. And I only knew that because the guy put it on his Facebook page. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was like, wow. And, and I, you know. that's a, That that says it all right there. Well, it says, yeah, it's an so, incredible it a amount of respect. And, yeah. and I'm sitting there thinking, you know, here I am playing my first show, and it's, you know, your first show is never a good show. Mm. And it rained. And it was just the, so the deck was slick because it's outdoors. And um, we get done. And then um, the singer from, um, you ever heard of a band called Throw Rag? Do you remember mm-hmm. those guys? Yeah. Oh, that guy was there, Captain Sean. Yeah. You know, and like, okay, well, the very first person I talked to, as soon as I put my guitar down, and I'm, I'm and the first guy up grabs me and shakes my hand was Xander Schloss. Oh, wow. And he's like, man, your guitar tone's killer. <laughs> I was like, thanks. He goes, I'm Xander. I'm like, I know who you are. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Captain Sean comes up, and he's like, he's almost in tears. He grabs my hands, and he's going, thank you. Thank you. You know, 
thank you. And I'm like, I just play guitar, <laughs> man. You know, but that's it, it, it. And that's that was a lot of stuff. But people come up and go, thanks for saving the band. And I'm like, I didn't save the band. You guys save the band mm-hmm. by accepting what we're doing and, you know, accepting not just me, but accepting that the band continues. And, you know, I think it's been good. Mm-hmm. I think it's been good. I think it's been great. I mean, you, you came in and you you did, like, do justice to his sound. Well, but with also kind of doing your own thing or, or sliding your own thing in a little bit. And it's, you know, it's not like Joe was the flashiest guitar player in the world. No. But I don't think anybody could have just stepped in and taken that place I either. I, well, that's what I, I say. It, you can't it'd be like, you can't replace, you couldn't have replaced, say, Johnny Ramone with Eddie Van Halen. Yeah. Eddie so. Van Halen might be the, you know, this great brilliant guitar player but you know what i don't think he could do very well play ramon songs exactly and so uh, you know um i don't think a a a quote-unquote guitar because i don't consider myself a guitar player Mm -hmm. or a musician never have yeah i play punk rock guitar yeah i play power chords (laughs) i I know the feeling you know i'm okay with that i don't say that to belittle myself or anything Mm -hmm. i just know what i do i do what i do well but i don't think of myself as a quote unquote musician. Yeah. You know, I don't, you know, there's stuff I can't do and I'm okay with it. Mm-hmm. You know, what I do, I do really well. It is what it is. And so I don't think, you know, and this is going to sound really horrible probably, but I don't, I don't think there's anybody else that could have taken that spot other than me. Yeah. I mean, cause I think about like who else could have stepped in there and like we mentioned Mike or you mentioned Mike Hendrick earlier. Mm-hmm. It would have been a totally different band. It would it would change everything completely. And you know, I get it. I know where they're coming from. You know, and but also, I think I'm just in the right spot that I can play it where it's not going to be sounding like a a guy riding the brakes. Anybody Mm. better is going to sound like they're riding the brakes. Does that make any sense? Yeah. But um, I still don't think we've got it recorded properly yet. My sound. I don't know what we. You know, that's been a big issue for me. Mm -hmm. Um. You know, I think with some of the stuff we're we're going for, kind of capturing lightning in a bottle. Uh, we record quickly and cheaply. They've always kind of sort of did that anyway. Yeah, yeah. I but think that's the best way to do it. Honestly, we're very DIY now. We're all in house. We mm-hmm. got our own means to record now. Right down to the artwork. Right down to our record label. Yeah, we're really lucky. Or Jeff's really lucky to have made that connection with tko oh yeah yeah and that guy's a really really good dude now he owns his own pressing plant too he's Mm -hmm. got cascade record pressing and so that kind of gives us you know carte blanche with colors and such like this so you know i don't have anything to do with that end that's still jeff's end but it's cool that good great job with it too i mean i love the packaging for an anti-scene record that's something that you know we all think of and and that comes from all being kiss nerds Mm -hmm. you know when you were a kid you got your kiss record and it wasn't just that you got your record and put your you know you had something inside it you know (laughs) it it was like having like a cracker jack box you you had you know we we try to think of stuff it's like what can we do to make this especially now because you know what 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 makes anyone want to buy physical media mm-hmm. you know you got to do something that's going to make it have value yeah you know not just you know not that the music in, in, in and of itself but you know to have physical media you know, you'll have you'll still have those people that the dedicated vinyl fans that'll go out and buy it just for the music well yeah but you know if you put a poster in and it, somebody will go, oh i gotta have that poster yeah you know, well, even if they don't have a record player did you <laughs> see the packaging for the live in japan record i've got that yeah. man that's it's, it's nice fucking nice <laughs> and you know they had that we that was already we had no plan of that we got there 
And we played the first night, and we became aware they had recorded it off the board. Mm-hmm. And Jeff made mention of it, like Mark Rainey, the guy from Tico, how's everything going? Great, blah, 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 blah. They recorded the show off the board live in Japan. Yeah. And then, you know, Gooch, our drummer at the time, was like, oh, man, it ought to be white vinyl with the red center sticker, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so we, all these ideas were already in play, but, you know, right, right off the, you know, and I was just like, wow, you know, how that stuff. Oh, yeah. So, but then, of course, you know, he dropped out and uh, had to replace him. And what we did was uh, Barry had been the drummer in Anticene. Mm-hmm. He had left the band and he came back as the bass player. Yeah. Which was an unusual spot for him to be in, but. It worked really well. Mm-hmm. So he was the bass player when I joined. And then Grooch left, and he just naturally went right back to the drums. Yeah. And we got Malcolm now playing bass. And Malcolm, of course, put out my first record all those years ago. Oh, yeah. He was, he was, he was the first. We, we contacted a couple of people, and he was the first one. We were, we were like two weeks out from going out on tour with I Hate God and mm-hmm. The Obsessed. And we were not going to cancel. We needed somebody. Yeah. And we knew, you know, it was smarter to put Barry on drums because he already knew all the songs. Yeah. So we thought it'd be easier for someone to learn playing bass. bass play. Yeah. And the first, and like, like he contacted and Malcolm was the first one who said, hell yes. What yeah. time do I need to be there? <laughs> and Malcolm was in Connecticut. All the way from Connecticut. And he's Danbury, done that. He's done that every single time for everything we've done. And he will come. I mean, if we want to book one show, he'll come down and play just that one show. Mm. It's like crazy. He's super dedicated. Um, I want to get him on the podcast sometime. You need to get him he on. He seems like he's got a lot of stories, yeah, a lot I mean, of great stories. He does. He's a, he's kind of a renaissance savant or whatever. I, I love just know. watching him whenever he goes live on Facebook yeah. or does his videos on YouTube. Did you hear his story about uh, where he was talking about going on tour with his first band? I don't know if I've heard that one or not. <laughs> he talks about that. They opened for Black Flag in a time when no one was allowed to open for Black Flag. They mm-hmm. scammed their way on a Black Flag show. Then they come down through southwestern Virginia, and guess who they played with? Anticine? Oh. No. Luke Puke and the Vomit. Oh, wow. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? And I'm just like, man, you cannot tie all this together in like, any more my, perfect way. This won't make any sense. It'll be way out of, out of context. But my friend Matt says, plate of shrimp. <laughs> huh? Yeah, plate of shrimp. And he just basically means that that's like all these little coincidences that oh, all yeah. kind of tie together for some reason. It's it's weird it's how it all ties together. <laughs> I actually ended up seeing Luke Puke in the Vomit open for NIC in 1993. Oh, went wow. up to Roanoke. <laughs> and the guy was just like, you know, when I said, Gigi said, don't do me, do you, or whatever. Don't do what I do, do what you do. Mm. That guy didn't get the message. He was doing the Gigi thing, like, yeah. but a really bad, watered down, you know, <laughs> kind of thing of it. He showed up with his girlfriend and he leading him on a leash. Mm. And it was just kind of like, really, dude? <laughs> you know, come on. Cause this, and it was weird because this was like more than 10 years after yeah. <laughs> I had read about him as a little kid in the newspaper. And I'm like, Man, that review was right. You yeah. suck. <laughs> yeah, well, then they wanted to pick a fight with Anticene at the end of the night. And uh, at that point, we were like, we just didn't care. We were we were sitting there cutting wrestling promos on them. They were on one side of the room, and they were like, you know, talking about like their hair and stuff. Well, at least they keep it clean, you know, stuff. And I was just going, Run Oak, let me tell you something right now. You're damaged goods, you know. And, 
me and Greg were doing it, and we were just like, woo! And they finally went away, but whatever. Record company president! We're gonna kill this business! You step behind your desk, your suit and tie. Telling people what they wanna hear it, they're allowed to buy. You tell me I can play with a big boy, like a form of business. You can stick it up your ass It don't mean shit now Kill the business Kill the business Kill the business Kill it We are bitch Go ahead and tell it now. I'm still I'm still rolling. Oh, okay. Well, here's a here's a here's a cool failure this, this story. Will be, this will be about good. Like after the end of the, the the last song I play, this will be the last story. This is a funny story. I, I told this on Facebook recently, but Tom O'Keefe, for man, it was a bass player in NSC at the time. Mm-hmm. 
got it where he was going to, he decided he was going to try to start booking bands as a booking agent, quote unquote. And he booked failure into a club called Jacob's Run down in Wilmington. Okay. And we were going to open for this band on Discord Records called The Holy Rollers. Hmm. And he gives us this piece of paper, you know, load in time and this, that, and the other, right? And, you know, he he is, uh, he's printed out and then fills out the rest by hand or whatever. And it was like, okay, we're going to go open for the Holy Rollers. There's only one problem. We don't have any of our shit together. Mm -hmm. John Marlowe has his drum kit. I think that's it. I think that's all we get. I think we went down there with that thinking, surely in the spirit of punk rock brotherhood, they'll share their gear. Yeah. Which is a really fucking dumb thing to do. <laughs> and so we ride down there and uh, we roll up to the club and go in and we're like, hey. And they're like, yeah, what can we help you? And I'm like, yeah, we're the opening band. Uh, opening band? <laughs> Yeah, we're the opening band. He's like, we're not, there's no opening band. You know, and I was like, what are you going to, the Holy Rollers were going to play and they were just going to have a DJ over something open. I don't know. Hmm. And I'm like, but we've got this piece of paper, <laughs> you know, and he looks at it and, he, and, and so whatever the snafu was, someone booked us and whoever was there that night that was running it was not aware of it. Yeah. So he's like, well, I mean, I don't know that I can pay you anything. I might can give you twenty five bucks. We're like, it's a deal. <laughs> yeah. No, now we still haven't come up to the problem that we have no equipment. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna tell them, just follow my lead. So we go up, and the holy rollers are there, and we're like, hey, y'all, man, we're the opening band. Oh, cool. What's your band called? Failure. Oh, okay. You know, hey, look. Um, Man, we showed up at our practice room this morning, opened it up, and all our shit was stolen. They're like, oh, you're kidding. I was like, yeah, it's insane, right? And he's like, yeah. I was like, man, I, I hate to ask, but you think we could use your amps? We brought our guitars, I think. Right. They were like, well, they huddled together, and they were like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we got our own drum kit, right? Yeah. I was like, John went and got his drums the night before. Yeah, so his stuff was okay, but all our stuff got stolen. Quite a while. <laughs> I don't even think we really had a practice room. So we're using the Holy Roller shit, you know. But they, they're they just a trio, and we were two guitars, bass, and drums. Mm-hmm. Not that we needed two guitars. So Brad just didn't play guitar. He just sang that night. We launched in our first song, right? And all these kids flood right down to the front. And there's not a crowd there. There's like, and this is a mammoth room. It's like an old theater. It's got a balcony, yeah. right? And there's like, there might be 50 people there. Mm. But the 50 people there all run down front, right? And by the end of the set, they bought us drinks and they're like pumping their fists near here. And they're just like, yeah. And they just think we're the, and I was like, you know, and I'm looking at Brad going, see, this is going to work, you know? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, you know. So we get done. We're feeling pretty good. Holy Rollers get up and play, and it's just like, <laughs> you know, everyone's just sort of blinks, you know, and they play a set, and they're, you know, they were kind of, they were real poppy in a way, I mm. guess is the best way I can describe it. They, you know, we were like aggro, and they weren't, and so they come off stage, and they're all sweating, you know, toweling down, and the guy sits down, and he's just his slumped shouldered. <sighs> 
man, you guys blew us away. <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking, that's right, we sure did. <laughs> and on your own goddamn equipment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a Gabba Gabba Hunt Media Production.